football poop is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palzola, Sam Monson, previewing week eight of the NFL action. But before we get into it, special thanks to our friends over at Monkey Knife Fight. You got to get over there right now because all first time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight that put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's right, $40 of value for just $20. Bucks, plus, you get the opportunity to turn that $20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest growing fantasy sports sites in the country. It's Monkey Knife Fight. This is a no-brainer. Just get to Monkey Knife Fight right now. Deposit your 20 bucks with promo code PFF today and you receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. The PFF NFL podcast is also brought to you by pristineauction.com. Check out their daily auctions with $1 starting bids on over 8,000 football items they're all up for auction. Signed helmets, balls, jerseys, and much more. Pristine Auction guarantees authenticity on every product. Use that promo code PFF for $10 off your first invoice. Sam, we got a great show. It's the best show we've had since Monday. Yeah, true. You sound very excited today. I'm fired up. It's okay. just great. It's, mid it's a mid-season random boost of energy. <laughs> We're supposed to be, you know, getting tired. No, yeah, I'm no ready not to you. Because we got Kevin Clark from The Ringer yes. on the podcast today. Unfortunately, he brought up rugby. It was at the end, but he brought up rugby. We're trying to avoid rugby. I think I might have brought it up. No, he, well, maybe. I mean, he, he, he embraced it. He did. It was, a, it was a good discussion, though. We talked a little bit of football. We talked about um, Kevin Clark's in general. There was a lot of good stuff. So that's Revlon, mustaches. Revlon. Really yeah, the hit Revlon everything. example that he gave was, was really good yeah. in describing the Antonio Brown signing for the Tampa Bay Bucks. So check that out at the end. But first, listen to us. That's the thing. Don't fast forward to the interview. God, no. The important stuff is right now. Previewing week eight, starting with the Thursday night game, we got the Falcons and the Panthers. I'm calling this the battle of the over versus underachievers. Okay. The Panthers roster should not be... Doesn't feel like catchy? Well, it's just what it is. It's not catchy. It's just oh. descriptive. Okay. More than anything. Maybe Falcons, that's, maybe that's why you're bad at naming things. Big time throws and turnover worthy throws are hot right now. Hmm. Just saying. Social team loves them. They're hot. Name those. Uh, over versus underachievers. Falcons versus Panthers. Discuss. Boom. Okay. How's that? Um, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's great. I'm curious. Are the Falcons going to find another creative way to lose a game? Because they're really I sure hope so. They're going through TV. the spectrum at this point. Yeah. Like they're finding they're finding some pretty weird ways. To sum up, last Sunday, yeah. the way that they lost was Todd Gurley accidentally scored a touchdown. Yes, literally when he wasn't supposed scored. to giving the Lions their, like, 2% chance of coming back to win. They released the audio, and they were, like, specifically telling him in the huddle, do not score. He's like, yeah, I got you. I know, I know. Now, I think the audio was from the play before, like, not that exact play. But the point is, they were acutely aware, whatever you do, 
don't get in the end zone because this, that gives them the ball back. Is this like the DB intercepting the deep fourth down pass when he should knock it down? And it's like, look, nobody's – at the end of the year, it's an interception. So, at the end of the year, it's a touchdown. It's going to show up. Well, so the thing is, Todd Gurley apparently has a bonus tied to touchdowns. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> now, now the, when you look at what actually happened – he's fighting through a tackle of a guy who then like lets him go and right. drops off right and that kind of you know you're dragging 200 pounds and suddenly 200 pounds isn't on you anymore so you like fall forward so that i think that's what happened and why he went like a yard further than he wanted to it took a couple steps to realize it though. well on the other hand why are you fighting through that tackle like just go down yeah you don't like you don't need to yeah, drag that guy any further from the two instead of the five right like i don't understand why you're fighting through the contact in the first place that then suddenly disappears and you stumble forward because it's gone it, it, and even after that the falcons still managed to give up a 29 yard laser for matthew stafford right to Kenny then, you know, and stop. then a you know a walk-off touchdown from the lions essentially on a busted coverage um so yeah it was very creative in the falcons pantheon of losing um but all that said the Falcons should be much better with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and everything that they have offensively. What are they going to do defensively against a pretty good Carolina offense the way they're spreading the ball around? Yeah. With no Christian McCaffrey, by the way. Right. I think the Panthers are the interesting team in this because they have been overachieving so much because we thought that talent-wise, this was one of the worst rosters in the NFL, and they're clearly way better than that. I, I think it's fun to see them you know, in primetime in a nationally televised game and everyone gets to have a look at what exactly is going on with Carolina right now. Um, they're, to me, they're the most interesting team here. The Falcons are the same team the Falcons have been for years and that's why, you know, they fired everybody in the building and are rebuilding. We have breaking news from the Carolina Panthers Twitter account. Okay. Panthers are back in black tonight. They're going to be wearing black uniforms. Huh. That's important. Some of you have already seen this. I hope it was a great game, but I'll be looking for that. Yeah, I'm looking for the Panthers and that youth movement on the defensive side of the ball Derek Brown Jeremy Chin uh, they actually on paper should have had one of the worst cornerback groups in the NFL but Corn Elder Rasul Douglas Dante Jackson all playing pretty good football for the Panthers against a tough slate of offenses yeah so um, Matt Rule doing the job he's doing with what looks like a subpar roster I think is encouraging for the Panthers moving forward so I'm just rooting for a funny way of losing oh man so much hate for the poor Falcons. Let's get into the best games of the week. Let's start in the AFC Central North. Pittsburgh Steelers at the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens are favored by three and a half yeah. against the undefeated Steelers. You know, everybody puts out their power rankings every week. And everybody has to put the Steelers at number one. They feel obligated to put well, the, the Steelers only, at number one. Only undefeated team, Steve. So they have to That's be number one. But uh, Vegas disagrees. Uh, it is in Baltimore. But three and a half point spread at, uh, as of right now for the Ravens. What are you looking for in this one? Um, the defenses. I, I, so I kind of get why the Ravens are favored. I think it might... Yeah, me too. Why is your reason? They're awesome other than games against the Chiefs. Okay. That's the, not the they're, they're just I'm a more with. dominant all-around team, I think. Than they're also coming off a bye, and they're a good coaching team and yeah. a good team coming off a bye, whereas the Steelers had a tough go of it last week against Tennessee. Like, that makes sense. That makes a difference, even if home field doesn't necessarily make a difference anymore. Um, also, the PFF's power ratings, um, which if you go to Greenline, if you have that, the sort of betting resource, go to the power ratings, that pulls it, it leverages all of our ELO stuff and our data to basically tell you how much better each team is than the next on a neutral field, all things considered, right? And we have the Ravens actually as 
two and a half, almost three point better than the Steelers. So it does make sense that they're favored. On the other hand, this Steelers defense, which is the thing I'm coming back to every single week, is just murderous towards opposing offenses. Now, the Titans, I think, did a really good job of eventually writing that and getting away from it and being able to hurt them late on. I'm really intrigued to see Baltimore's unique, right? They have Lamar Jackson. Nobody else has a Lamar Jackson. Therefore, it's a completely different prospect to try and stop this team as it is anybody else. So does Lamar give them a unique way of fighting back against this defense or are the things that Pittsburgh are doing right now, which is basically throwing bodies at the line of scrimmage, regardless of whether it's run or pass, are they actually the things you need to do to shut down Lamar Jackson in 2020? Yeah, so I want to, I want to take back a little bit what, about what I said. I don't think the Ravens are necessarily – they're not a better all-around team necessarily than the Steelers. The Steelers, I think, when you just kind of go like unit by unit, might be as well-rounded as any team in the league. You know, there's no like major weaknesses there other than – the secondary, which has been good the last couple of weeks, hasn't been you know, at, up to par, what they've expected. I think the interesting part of this is what you're saying, though, right? When you go up against the Steelers, I'll say the same thing I said last week, should the Titans have made this a Ryan Tannehill game? On, on paper, you don't want to go 7-on-7 seven seven in the trenches and try to run the ball. Well, the Ravens want to run the ball, right? Mm -hmm. But when the Ravens run, it's not 7-on-7 seven seven or 8-on-8. Eight eight. It's... Lamar changing the math yep. and changing everything right so that's what makes it fascinating the Ravens don't need to beat up the Steelers defensive front from a blocking standpoint they just have to make them wrong that's where Lamar comes in so I do expect more uh more keepers so to speak more, more Lamar driven run game but that's one of the biggest stories of the year for the Ravens they haven't run the ball the same way as they did last year and I wonder if they've been specifically protecting him for this game Right? It's like Lamar is nursing an injury. Let's limit how much we ask him to do because in a couple of weeks' time on the horizon is the Pittsburgh Steelers, and we're going to need him in that game. Like We're not going to need him against Cincinnati. We're not going to need him necessarily before that. But when Pittsburgh are there, he actually matters in terms of this game. The, I mean, particularly because when you look at like the biggest mismatches up front, the Steelers' interior guys who we talked about before, they're really good at making sure they're one-on-one -on -one all game long. Cameron Hayward, Stephon Tewitt, you're not getting double Tyson teams. Alu -Alu. Yeah, you're not getting double teams on those guys because of the blitzes they send, right? So they're one-on-one -on -one against those interior Ravens offensive linemen who we've talked about before are, are now a weakness because they're not Marshall Yanda. So suddenly there's an already apparent mismatch. You're probably not going to have the success you want running the ball up the middle with Ingram or Gus Edwards or whoever. That, that space is going to be missing. So you're going to need Lamar Jackson to be taking the ball and the keeper around the perimeter and hope you can win there. Um, to back up your point real quick, top five graded interior defensive lineman with at least 150 snaps. Tyson Alu-Alu, second in the NFL for the Steelers. Stephon Tewitt's fourth, Cameron Hayward fifth. They have three of the five interior defensive linemen in the NFL right now. That's impressive. Yeah. So as I say, they've got a mismatch there. The Ravens' mismatch might be with Lamar. But if you're just blitzing, if you're sending bodies at him all day long, that might take away that. You might bottle up those lanes. The really intriguing thing is teams seem to have almost reverted back to the Miami game plan from week one of 2019 that was such a complete train wreck, right? I don't trust you to be able to pass the ball over our heads, so we're going to just send bodies at you in terms of Lamar and the Ravens. Um, he hasn't been as good this year at doing that. The stuff we talked about, the eight whatever percent 
touchdown rate was absurd. It was right. unsustainable. It's going to come back to earth, and it has. And teams almost seem to have like crept back towards that game plan. It's like, all right, we got a little bit ahead of ourselves last year. That was too much, and it turns out he could punish us. But right now, he's not in that same groove, so that kind of is the way to stop him, or at least slow him down. Plus, the, the Dolphins didn't have the horses, really, to right. pull it off. Now, Minka Fitzpatrick was a part of that Dolphins team, but they had him like one-on-one -on -one with Marquise Brown, yeah. and that was, you know, 83 yards later, not great. Uh, I will say, you know, again, the Steelers have, they have the pieces to slow down the Ravens. So, and, and the fact that the Ravens haven't been as dominant this year, you know, does make this, oh man, it's going to be a great matchup. It's a, it's really a good one. I can't wait to see if, to your point, the Ravens have kind of been setting this up. And I do think we see Lamar carrying 10 to 15 times in this one. They have to rely on him more than they've had to against some of the worst teams in the NFL over the last few weeks when they've been playing. And the other thing is, it's 2020, right? So even if like defenses just don't hold up over a game, it doesn't happen anymore. It's too right. hard. So the Steelers might have, I mean, this is what happened against the Titans. The Steelers had the defense to stuff up that Titans offense, but eventually it got them with a few big plays. The so Ravens, the same thing, right? You might do a really good job for like three quarters, but it only takes a couple of plays and it's Marquise Brown for 75 and it's Lamar getting into open field for another 70 and suddenly you're you know it's a 14 point swing and it looked like you had a crappy day on defense you know what i mean it is uh, yeah I, I get it i think this is really intriguing for the steelers right now they're six and oh you can look back at their schedule and say who did they beat that was good the first team was the titans good win against a good titans team but they beat up the giants the broncos texans eagles browns are good but you know and they crushed them so the last few weeks they've beaten teams with good records if they get past the Ravens right now, go to 7-0. and Cowboys, Bengals, Jaguars are next before they meet the Ravens again in late November. We could be looking at a 10-0 Steelers team going hosting the Ravens on November 26th. For the Steelers, to an extent, this game is almost house money. Like, all they want is to split the series with the Ravens at this point, right? They already have a lead in the division. They're undefeated, the only undefeated team. In terms of seeding, if they can get out of this season having split the series with the with the Ravens, they're in great shape. And this is the away game, right? So it's like a shot to nothing. We take a swing at it here. We don't get it. Okay, we get to bring them back to Heinz Field and take another shot at it later on. So I'm kind of curious to see if they do just go, you know, guns out, guns blazing, and see if they can pull off something crazy, knowing that they have like a second shot at this in a few weeks' time, with the one that really matters. So what about the other side of the ball, Big Ben? playing a more conservative brand of football, spreading the ball around to a pretty good group of playmakers when they're all in the field healthy. Deontay Johnson, Juju, the emergence of Chase Claypool, who was kind of non-existent last week against the Titans, going up against that Ravens secondary. That matches up pretty well. Marlon Humphrey's their highest graded player. He's one of the best corners in the NFL. Jimmy Smith still playing ball. <laughs> you, you texted me the other day. He's been around since 2011. I feel like I've I've had him as like a bounce back candidate for eight straight years now. Yeah, um, but he's playing pretty well. I mean, the the Ravens have the corners to slow down the Steelers. They do, and Marlon Humphrey, I think, is honestly one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. Just doesn't get the credit because of what he's asked to do in that defense. Here's the thing, right? So Ben Roethlisberger has turned into this more. Again, I, I don't like using the term game manager because it's become this pejorative for quarterbacks, but facilitator within the offense, That's right? That's good, yeah. His job is to just get the ball to all these playmakers and not be a reason that there's problems. Get, get the ball quickly. Yes. Them, right? Now, that is that is actually the critical point here yeah. that I'm making, right? Get the ball out of your hands fast. Get it in the hands of these guys, right? But 
where the Ravens are really good on defense is not just that they blitz you like crazy. These are two number one and number two blitz teams in the NFL, right? The Ravens and the Steelers. So they're going to blitz you a lot. But what they do on the back end is they work out, okay, if I, if I send this blitz and you read it, where do you want to go with the ball, right? What is your hot read off this? Right. And that's what they attack, right. right? They are really good at sending a guy into the space that you want to attack off the back of this blitz. So the Steelers' offense, in one way, looks perfect for this defense, right? We get the ball out of our hands fast. We're not asking him to hold on for an age and get sacked. We're going to shoot all these quick spaces. On the other hand, that's what they want you to do. So this is a great chess battle between whether who wins that, right? Do the Steelers win? by having different hot reads to the ones the Ravens anticipate them having, or do the Ravens essentially manage to drop a guy into every hot route the Steelers want to run and end up with like three Roethlisberger picks on the day of him trying to avoid the blitz getting it out quickly? There's one other factor here. Yannick Ngakwe, Mm -hmm. Ravens traded for him last week during the bye, and we mentioned the Ravens blitz here every single week and how they don't really rely on players to win one-on-ones. And last year, they definitely didn't have the horses to do it. Right. But now... Calais Campbell's there. You bring in Yannick Ngakwe. You have two guys, and Judon is still there, and they move him around, and he's, you know... You have three legitimate, you know, pretty good pass rushers, two better than, you know, Calais Campbell and Yannick Ngakwe. You can kind of trust to get after the quarterback. Do they change up their strategy just a little bit? Are they actually going to... Uh, what is this breaking news here? Are they actually going to trust their four-man rush just a little bit? With an Ngakwe there... And Aclaeus Campbell, two guys that they've brought into the mix over the last year. I don't think that they'll scale back the blitz because they bring in Ngakwe. Because I think their blitz is... I don't think their blitz is a product of not having horses. I think their not having horses is a product of their blitz plan. Okay. But what having the horses does, or at least upgrading the horses, is mean that the one-on-one matchups that you scheme by virtue of the blitz are now going to win more often. Right? So it's like the Steelers thing. They make sure that you cannot double team Cameron Hayward and Stefan Tuitt. Therefore, those guys win more often because they're one-on-one all the time. If you get Ngakwe one-on-one all the time, he's going to win more than Matthew Judon did or you know whoever else would be in that spot. So I think their defense just gets more effective by him being there. I don't think he's going to cause them to dial back on the aggressiveness in terms of how often they blitz. All right, so Ravens by three and a half. As usually, as usual here, we talk through it, and I'm like, man, I thought I liked the Ravens. Now I kind of like the Steelers in this one. Good. Do that because I want to go the other way. All right, I'll take Pittsburgh. I don't feel great about it, though. I don't love the spread. I don't like the fact that it's three and a half by what we're seeing. On the other hand, I can kind of see why it is, and I think the matchups are good. Three and a half is massive for any of these AFC North. The Steelers and Ravens, no matter who they have personnel wise always seem to play those close games anyway but I guess I'll take Pitt let's go to another division battle San Francisco 49ers at the Seattle Seahawks Seahawks by two and a half as of right now unfortunately the Niners are without Debo Samuel as they were just getting back to full speed and you watch Debo and Brandon Ayuk and the way those guys are being used in space you're like all right Niners offense starting to look a little bit like last year Garoppolo distributing facilitating Another facilitator there. We're going to need um, a new word for that as well. Yeah, we will. We, get, we can get a thesaurus. Thesaurus. 
So ne- next time we want to say the same word that you've already said, we just pull up the We thesaurus. don't even have the helmet. Look, you bring Austin into the booth, and we don't have a helmet set up or anything. This is a train Can wreck. we get our sponsor's helmet out here, please? Oh, you got it, Sam? All right. Finally, the Steve Palazzolo NFL podcast. Let me tell you about this 49ers. Sam just left but in the Seahawks matchup. Russell Wilson coming off a game with three turnovers, two of which were certainly his fault and disastrous. And, you know, going back home... Does Seattle? Here's my big question with Seattle and Brian Schottenheimer and Pete Carroll. Was were the turnovers enough to uh, to pull Russ out of the kitchen? Right. This is. I've been kind of saying. I mean, we. This was my point on the Mina podcast. Right. We were on Mina's show, and the question was basically, "What is wrong with all of the best teams in the NFL?" Perfect for me. Right. The negative aspect oh, of all this. Oh, it's great. It's a great show. Right. An hour so, of negativity from Sam. <laughs> so my thing with the Seahawks is. You know, at some point, they are just itching to go conservative again. You don't, see, I told you he's going to turn it over if he has to throw it 50 times. You don't erase that many years of being that conservative with like one off season of, you know what, we're just going to let Russ air it out, see what happens. You do, no, it doesn't happen. Event somewhere in the back of their brains, they're just waiting for the trigger to go back to like ultra conservative, pound the football, don't let Russ make a mistake. That's crazy talk. Like, and that could be it. I, I think it's going to happen in the playoffs sometime where you meet good teams and it's like, whew, I don't know if we want to be letting him pass 30 times well, against December the Bucks. December and January, football's one right. on the ground. Against so. the Bucks in the, in the postseason. Look at that defense. Whew. But, I mean, that could be it, right? We, I don't know, Russ made a few mistakes against Arizona. Maybe we dial it back a little bit. I don't think that they do. But okay. I could see it. You know, it's, it's a division matchup. It's a division matchup against a team that does like to run the ball. And, you know, do is there takeaway? It, look, this, this is where we've criticized teams in the past, is when things go wrong, they might not fully be able to under... They don't fully realize why it went wrong. They might look at the wrong things, right? If Seattle looks at that game and they're like, you know what, things went wrong because Wilson threw the ball 50 times and there were turnovers that were bad. What are you smirking at, man? I'm not smirking. This is my default face. What's happened here? Anyway... Do they go back and say the turnovers are why we lost? Instead of saying Russell Wilson played an outstanding game for 95% of it, but that 5% is what cost us the game, and well, we can't I mean, have that. The turnovers were why they lost. Like It would be true. The question it was, is, but the overall body of work was yeah, still yeah. far more positive than negative. But that's different, right? The question is, is that a reason to go to a different game plan? Not is that, I mean, it doesn't matter why you lost. That, that is a reason you lost. It was. But the yes. question is, do we therefore change what we want to do off the back of that because it was a mistake? To which the answer is no. Russell Wilson is A, playing out of his mind, and B, by far your best chance to win the game. So don't take it out of his hands just because he made some mistakes, which he did. And they did cost you the game. That's fine. That's going to happen in the NFL. It's a tough it's a tough league, and mistakes are going to be a problem. So, yeah, I, I, that's the thing I'm most interested, though, is will they go back to, to a more conservative game plan? And then obviously the other side of the ball is Kyle Rembrandt-Shanahan against the latest defense trying to stop him. Bill Belichick got wrecked by Rembrandt. Can Pete Carroll's defense do any better? So Seattle, they, did, they made a trade this week as well. They bring in an edge defender of their own, Carlos Dunlap. Have you been on his house yet? I have not. That was great. So Dunlap, who lives here in Cincinnati, obviously, yeah. former Bengal. Uh, right after the game on Sunday, tweets out that his you know, house is for sale. For yeah, a little, you know, it sounded the, very nice. 
It did sound. Did you, uh, the bed, he only has four bedrooms, though. Is eh. Yeah, but it's like a four, it's like, what was it, like a 6,000 square foot house? Think how big that makes the bedrooms. Yeah, I need bedrooms, though. You do. Well, on the other hand, if they're huge, you know, bunk beds. Yeah, the kids don't sleep well when they're the, um, uh, well off. AJ I, I'll, Hawk, I'll consider it. AJ Hawk was on Pat McAfee's show and was telling him a story about, you know, AJ Hawk was in Cincinnati for however long he was there. Yeah. And he was like, I just need to rent like a small apartment for a while, right? And apparently Dunlap back then was trying to sell him that house. So, oh, really? So he's been trying to shift that for a while. I he's don't been know, on might, his way out Might not while. be a quick sale. The um, New England media have been tracking Stephon Gilmore's house being for sale. Oh, yeah? We'll, we'll talk about what well, the Well, they, they nailed that with the Brady thing. They did. Brady's house was for sale. It was that like, is... no, he's just moving mansions. Don't worry about it. Reporting in 2020 is just, you know, surfing Zillow and seeing who's getting Well, it's Zillow and Instagram. Did he unfollow somebody on Instagram and is his yes. house for sale? That is the... Those uh, are the only two things we need to know. That's and why also, Schefter's so good. He's probably got 10 interns right. checking Insta. And right? then the last one is, is there a private plane in flight somewhere? Yeah, that's... That's why we're not good reporters. We're not, not good. We don't have any of those things. No Instagram feel. No, uh, not on Zillow enough. Anyway, Carlos Dunlap, uh, Seattle's pass rush is rough when Jamal Adams is not in there. So Dunlap, who has not played well this year for the Bengals, but last year was really good. We talked about him a lot. When we were trying to, you know, have some positives about the Bengals last year, Dunlap was like the one. Yeah. And I think he'll be rejuvenated up there, and he immediately becomes their best one-on-one -on -one pass rusher other than – a. Jamal spurts Adams. of Benson Mayo. Yeah, and Jamal Adams. He, yeah, I mean, he's a year removed from a career season. Right. Right. Last year was the best year of his career in terms of PFF grade, in terms of PFF pass rushing grade. He had 50 plus total pressures, which is more than anyone on the Seattle defense right now had uh, or has had. It's more than anyone last year had except Jadavian Clowney. So, yeah, he should be. Now, this season has been anything but that. On the other hand, it's been pretty clear from the outset that like he's not happy there right like he's wanted out <laughs> for a while but i mean they benched him like it's been going south for um dunlap here for some time so i think you can probably not throw it out completely and maybe you don't expect him to have a career year again but he's somewhere in the middle right he isn't as bad as he's played this year and he's not as good as he was last season which is his high watermark but i agree that he immediately becomes their best pass rusher and probably best edge defender period and is a massive upgrade for a team that basically got him for a song like this is this is the perfect sort of trade deadline approaching trade from a seattle point of view right you yes. hold out you had a desperate need somewhere and oh look there's a disgruntled pretty good player who suddenly is available for almost nothing snag i think they were in the market you know they were considering a carlos dunlap alden smith everson griffin um so dunlap should help in the run game for sure Again, they don't have a pass rusher graded above 65 on their defensive line other than Jonathan Bullard, who only has 41 snaps to his name. So across the board, they're not getting after the QB. And, you know, 16 total pressures for Benson Mioa on 226 attempts, which is a huge number. That's top five in the league, but only 16 pressures. Demontre Moore, only 11 pressures. I mean, they, they just, they need help up there. So that should help for Seattle just a little bit. I want to see the Niners defense though too. They've they've, you know, played pretty well in recent weeks and you have Jason Verrett playing pretty well, you know, just like last week Tyler Lockett looked like a nice matchup against Drake Kirkpatrick and Patrick Peterson. That matchup's going to be awesome when Verrett and Lockett are matched up against each other, but I think it might be more of a DK Metcalf type of day for Seattle here. That's going to be interesting because again, like Jason Verrett, as good as he is, falls into the category of how does that human cover a DK Metcalf? 
Like right. just from a size point of view, like you can run with him, sure. But again, he outweighs you by 40 pounds. Like how, how do you deal with that? You can't. Like there's only so, eventually, there's only so much you can deal with in terms of like offsetting size. A lot of hand slapping. Yeah, like eventually he's just going to beat you up at the catch point and catch the football and swat you aside. Like it's nothing you can do about it. We saw the kind of physical freak DK is running down Buda Baker as good as Jason Brett is. And it's amazing to see him playing this well, given what he's been through. Like at some point, he's going to be one-on-one with DK. And that I would, if I'm Russell Wilson, that's like an immediate ball in the air. Yes, absolutely. I think this will be a good matchup, man. Seattle's got a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of guys questionable. Jamal Adams still battling injury, has only played three games this year. Shaquille Griffin's questionable. Benson Maioa, who I mentioned earlier, questionable. Dwayne Brown, questionable. This is as of Wednesday, so there's a lot that still can happen. I just found the flaw in uh, Austin, the camera guys. You know, be patient on the cameras. Don't switch over too early. But if you cough after you finish talking, you'll still be on the uh, the camera shot. Come on, look. I mean, look, these are the things that you learn as you're going through the your training process. Listen, sometimes when you're dealing with interns, you have to have patience. That's okay? true. That's so true. Austin's essentially, our, you know, was my in, fault. a producing intern right now. Mm. Um, it's about time Austin did something for this company and you know moved us forward by helping out you know the top podcast in catch the company. him on a two for one uh, drafts podcast yeah two for one drafts austin yeah. where he doesn't operate the cameras well maybe he could maybe, maybe he could sure. do everything yeah austin gale mvp of pff is behind the scenes here today and we just wanted to give him a shout out we appreciate him all right so what do you like who do you like in this game seattle two and a half at home do they bounce back after the weird weird loss against the cardinals i think they do um i think they will be annoyed at that loss yeah. will look to bounce back in a significant way and agreed I, I don't think that i think they'll do enough against that 49ers offense to slow them down i think we'll learn a lot on the first drive the first drive first seattle drive. had against arizona right. well the first drive russ five straight passes whether he cooks or not yes okay. five straight passes touchdown right that dictated what their strategy was going to be in that game if they come out and it's run run pass run run pass then maybe they're too conservative but if they keep the ball in russ's hands and they trust him i, I like seattle mm -hmm. in this one the other big game this weekend new orleans saints they travel outdoors to the uh -oh. chicago bears saints are four and a half point favorites their first outdoor game of the year bears offense struggling but the defense has kept it close how was i want to see what the saints offense does rumored 15 to 20 mile an hour wins will that actually affect drew Brees and throwing the ball or do well, the they great, throw underneath enough that it doesn't matter? that's the thing the great thing is you don't throw the ball far enough for the wind to be a problem yeah um, unless drew Brees' arm is so bad that the wind actually affects an eight yard pass and i mean eight yards is in actual travel distance not eight yards down the field right just eight yards from point to point the other thing is like at this point the only offensive weapon remaining for new orleans is kamara everybody's hurt or covid or something right nobody's playing it's Kamara and the end. I, I mean, Michael I Thomas know. hurt again. Still questionable. He's questionable once again. Marquez Callaway, who did have a really nice game last week, he's banged up. Emmanuel Sanders on the back. COVID list. I think. What's that? Can't Sanders on the COVID. Oh, he's on the COVID list, list. Okay. and is out for two games. So this will be the second. Um, I know we like we joked that their offense is Kamara. Let's get it to Kamara and let him break tackles, and that's it. It might have to be. There's nobody else. It's him and Jared Cook. The end. And that becomes, man, Roquan Smith, the Bears linebacker, he, he's got to be leading the league and really popping you know, offensive players with the ball but not actually tackling them. 
that's been happening in the last few weeks. He's absolutely crushing people who are just spinning off him. And that's Kamara's game. Nobody gets a straight shot on Kamara. So this is... This is one of those, you drafted Roquan Smith in the first round for games like this. Take out this back because you're one of the few linebackers that has the athleticism to match up with them. So um, that'll be a key matchup in this one. Does it feel like we're also due a non-crappy Nick Foles game? I don't know if we are. No? I I think, I I don't know. If those two great games that he had didn't happen in the NFC Championship in the Super Bowl, right? is Nick Foles closer to Blake Bortles than he is whatever we've been describing him to be? Which we've been describing him as like a Matthew Stafford light. Like a couple times a year you see greatness, but maybe that greatness just happened to have, uh, occur in the two most important games of the 2017 season. They definitely did, but even even outside of those two games, his range of outcomes is way broader than it's been so far. Like the, the impressive thing now is that every game he's played has been graded in the 60s except for the last one in the 50s like he's actually been bang on rank average but it's with it but this is what this was Jameis the last couple years we always talked about Jameis as a roller coaster ride but his four season grades that we have for him all ended up in the the same range but he so it's a roller coaster ride to the same destination but his his ended up at the same grade in at the end of every season Foles is grading the same every game even if within the game it's like he's not having he's due for a dud no, the dud <laughs> was last week. 30. The dud was the Rams game. I've seen much worse than that. Oh, of course, he's, I mean, he's capable of worse, but that was a bad game. I'm just saying that so far, where is the good Nick Foles? I don't know, but the Bears with Allen Robinson and Darnell Mooney, who torched Jalen Ramsey for what should have been a 70-yarder, and Foles could, just couldn't get it to him. He's under pressure. Darnell Mooney has been getting open mm-hmm. behind the defense. 4-3 speedster that uh, the fantasy folks are just waiting to break out if somebody can get him the ball. I think the Bears have the horses to compete. It's just not there right now. The the connection's just not there. When they're open, there's pressure, or Foles is missing them. Foles makes a great play. It's not getting caught. It's just not connecting right now for the Bears. Well, this is kind of my point, right? Like, It feels like we're due the upswing of a Nick Foles roller coaster at some point because the plays are there to be made, and he's not making them right now. Saints have had some issues on the back end. There was a bad coverage bust last week that led to a big touchdown by the Panthers. You know, so that's a factor as well. I, I'm, I'm leaning more toward, you know, we, I always joke about the indoor-outdoor thing, and you look at it from the lens of the quarterback. I don't think we appreciate enough how difficult it is to play defense indoors 10, 11, 12 games a year. There's a reason why I don't think you see like Peyton Manning's Colts or Breeze and the Saints. Like you don't see, you don't look back and like, look at that great defense and it's an indoor team, right? It's a lot of Northeast teams and, you know, AFC North, NFC North types of teams. It does matter. So I wonder if this is actually a turning point or just a game where the Saints D looks a lot better going up against the Bears here with the swirling wins. Yes, the swirling wins. I think it's a low score. I think it's a low scoring, you know, low scoring for today's NFL, 20 to 17 type of game. It's also, it's a great test for this new version of Drew Brees. You know, the, the two sliders cranked all the way up you know anticipation and accuracy this is going to put that to a test now you're outdoors you only have Kamara basically to play with your weapons are even more diminished than they were before can Drew Brees still be pinpoint accurate and it's just can he thread that needle because that's what you're doing at that point your margin for error is so small you basically have to hit every single thing you're aiming for because you're trying to do this in excruciating increments and so far last few weeks he's been really good at that 
this makes it harder. You're going up against a harder defense. You've got fewer weapons, and it's outside. Yeah, last week you hit those two deep outs. I think I talked about on Monday, and uh, it's the proxy for arm strength, but not with not the way Breeze throws it. It was anticipation. <laughs> it was accuracy. It was also just pre-snap recognition. I know it's absurd how the early corners off, the curl flat those. defender's going to give me some room. I'm going to throw it early and get it there. I don't think he tries that throw in Chicago, though. I don't think he's going to even try. If he does, I think it's picked off. Yeah, an 18-yard deep out. I don't care how early you throw it if it is that bad weather-wise. I, I don't think we're overrating the weather component, but I just there's a comfort level that Breeze has indoors in general, but at home, and it's just going to be interesting to see. Here we are, you know, in November. They haven't played outdoors until November. It is fascinating. So I think the Saints are still the better team. I think the Bears have been – their record is – inflated right i mean they're not really five and two and they started to come back down to earth monday night against the rams yeah i don't know i think they monday night was a mess of a game for them like that was a disaster and i think they're better than that i don't necessarily buy into this idea that they were a complete fraud team i think there's still something to this idea that they are a good roster that's being held back by the fact that their quarterback has not been amazing yet um now, it turns out that might actually be way more unlikely to happen than people were anticipating. But I'm still saying, like, at some point, they're going to connect on those big plays that are there and they're just not f finding. Like, if if uh, Foles did have a half beat longer, that's that's a touchdown off the back, like, from the shadow of your own end zone. Like, those are big game-swinging plays. So you think those plays are going to... At some point, they're going to swing. They're missing too the many Bears. of them at the moment for that for that to continue. Like at some point, that has to swing back in your direction just through natural chance. For the Saints, Teron Armstead, the left tackle, outstanding left tackle, uh, came out of the game against the Panthers. He's also questionable. I also would not be surprised as quickly as Breeze likes to get rid of the ball if Hakeem Hicks, who's been you know pretty good, and Khalil Mack, who's back to form, ninety point seven pass rush grade. I could see them causing some problems, even with the quick passing game for the Saints. So if we come in here, in here on Monday night and it was like, hey, man, that, that Bears D-line really dominated, wouldn't be surprised by that as well. I will lean Saints, though. I think their defense is going to look a lot better in this one. And I don't know if the Bears are ready to hit on those uh, those plays that they've been missing on, Sam. Yeah, I'm still picking the Saints. I'm, I'm off the Bears train since they let me down on Monday night. It's about time. Let's get... To the rest of the slate, Minnesota Vikings at the Green Bay Packers. Packers by seven. Uh, Minnesota, uh, so they just traded Yannick Ngakwe uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, what are you looking for in this one with the Vikings, who are better than they've looked, right? Aren't they? Are they? I think they are. I don't know. I mean, they. I'm not sure they think they are. I mean, they traded away Ngakwe. They seem to be making people available for yeah, the I trade. Yeah, I mean, their defense is bad too, but if you – not. Kirk Cousins thrown to Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen, the same description I always use for the Falcons. Like your baseline has to be a lot higher. Like you're gonna That's at least not a be team. Competing. That's like two, that's three guys. But it's the most important parts of the team. Like when you have those guys, you should at least be able to be in every game, and then it's just a couple breaks here and not there. Not only the 18 people suck. Yeah, they do. Not all of them. What but are you like, there's too many one? holes in this team. What's like, the matchup here? Kenny Clark is is kind of back for the Packers now, working his way back from injury. Um Kenny Clark against the interior of the Vikings offensive line is a monster mismatch when he's healthy. Um, so it, that's one of those ones that's so bad it has the potential to single-handedly wreck a game plan for you. And I think that's a big reason that Kirk Cousins tends to have some pretty ugly games against Green Bay sometimes. Um, so that, I think, is the single biggest matchup to watch in this. Is Kenny Clark like back to 100%? And if he is, 
<laughs> the Vikings come even close to slowing him down inside. How about the highest-graded PFF receiver versus the highest-graded cornerback? Nice. Justin Jefferson, the rookie, who has just been fantastic. Dude, he's averaging 19 yards per catch. Yeah. He was supposed to be you know, a nice little slot receiver coming out. That's what he was supposed to be. Good feel for the game. Pretty good route runner. 19 per catch, just balling out against Jair Alexander. Also a 90-plus grade, top-graded corner. I, you know, I was a little critical of Jair coming into the season, thinking there was there was too much volatility to his game, because last year and the years prior, year prior, he had you know a couple really bad games in there. Is he due for one of those? Is this the game where he gives up a buck fifty, or is he truly the guy lockdown status? So I'll be watching that matchup. Yeah, hasn't had one yet, and Justin Jefferson has genuinely replaced what they lost in Stephon Diggs, which is crazy. Like the chances of that hitting are tiny. And yet he does appear to have actually done that, at least through I, whatever it is, six games. I just look at the Vikings and think there was so many games, you know, the Colts game, uh, the Titans, they hung tough. But there was, um, I can't remember the other game offhand where they just fell behind so quickly. And it wasn't, like, Cousins didn't play well early in the game and he helped put them in a hole. It was the Falcons game. But they... The Falcons game is the one where you have to jump off the Vikings, right? It's like, all right, Atlanta suck as well. You go toe to toe with them, and Cousins just goes out there and like starts slinging the ball straight to Falcons players. Right, but like some was on Cousins, but there's there's been some unlucky interceptions there. They've just dug holes that were a little quirky, and I don't see that happening every week. I just think the Vikings are going to play more competitive games in the second half of the season here. And uh, division matchup, second time you play them, it might be a little closer than people expect. Green Bay is favored by seven, though. Do they cover at home? Yeah, I'm going to take Green Bay. I don't see a reason that the Vikings will keep that close always a vikings hater every single week i'll take green bay to win um but i think it might be i think minnesota might cover i think they're going to keep it close watch out minnesota keeps it within seven this mm. week remember it tennessee titans at our hometown cincinnati bengals titans favored by five and a half coming off their first loss of the year against the steelers last week the um sometimes when we analyze qbs in particular you know we kind of we have ebbs and flows that match the quarterback. Hey, he was great one week, bad the, ne the next week. The Bengals seem to be the team that gets QBs back on track. A couple <laughs> weeks ago, you're ready to write off Phillip Rivers after his game against the Browns. Don't worry, the Bengals are coming to town. Baker Mayfield had his worst game of his career against the Steelers. Don't worry, you got the Bengals next. Ryan Tannehill's coming off his worst grade in two years with the Tennessee Titans. Don't worry, you got the Bengals. Well, they certainly get Baker Mayfield back on track twice. They do. Uh, in a major way. Yeah. I mean, their defense, I don't think, is good. And it's very, it's not complex either, which is what, like we, the big stat was they forced Baker to a second read twice. Like they just, you didn't, you didn't present him with anything over the course of the entire game that even made him go to a second read, let alone change what he thought he was looking at pre snap. You just like, that's bad. At the very minute, I don't know how much you want to disguise on defense. But it has to be more than that. Like, it has to be more than you can literally go back and throw your first read every single drop back and be okay. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance that Ryan Tannehill and the, the Tennessee offense has a big day, which puts the focus back on the other side, Joe Burrow and his receivers. What's really interesting is when you look at, he's got a reasonable group of receivers, right? The guys that he has most success throwing to at the moment are T. Higgins, the rookie, and the other Michael Thomas. Um, T. Higgins, he's got a pass rating of 120 when he's throwing his way. And Michael Thomas, the other one, 
He's got a pass rating of 118 when throwing it his way. Those are the only two guys over 100. Like Tyler Boyd, Auden Tate, um, Erickson, John Ross, A.J. Green, all those guys are way below 100. It's the two, it's the rookie and the unknown, effectively, that he's actually having success throwing to. Get two guys that will be a part of, you know, I, when I think of the Bengals, it's who's going to be here next year? You know, who's going to be here as part of the rebuild? Unfortunately, a lot of those guys are banged up too. William Jackson, Jonah Williams, Joe Mixon, a lot of guys banged up for a team that already doesn't have a ton of talent. Uh, Joe Burrow versus Justin Herbert. We just put a, a tweet out there, PFF, you know, at PFF. Eight touchdowns by Justin Herbert of 20 plus yards, one for Burrow, right? Everybody's going to be comparing Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, and Nassun Tua, who we'll get to. Mm. Joe Burrow has, they've played at a similar level grade wise. Is Burrow's play more sustainable though he's winning at the short yeah. and intermediate level versus herbert down the field is that part of the encouraging part of burrow's play so far yeah one they're complete polar opposites in terms of how they've put together their game burrow is being really really impressive consistency or consistently um on the easier stuff the un, the underneath stuff um and the sort of the very stable things he just doesn't have the big plays. The highlights haven't been there. The spectacular plays haven't really been there. And so people look at him and they're now starting to, like the shine is coming off his early season performance. And everyone's like, well, is he really that good? And where's this spectacular arm strength? And people are nitpicking his game, right? And then the other side, you've got Justin Herbert, whose entire game is made up of spectacular plays. And it's like, wow, he's playing out of his mind. It's incredible. Look at his third down play. Look at this bomb. And you're like, yeah, but what about all the throws he's missing? And the, like, I'm not trying to crap on him. I'm saying they're yeah. they're netting out to about the same, right? I think both guys are impressive right With now. Different styles, right? But one is like all sizzle, right? And everyone's so therefore it's, one is like destined to be a highlight real player currently. So everyone's losing their mind. And it's like, look at these highlights; they're incredible. Whereas the other guy is like completely bereft of highlights, but actually is way more consistent down to down. And it's ending up at about the same level. But now you've got people saying, well, Herbert's way better than, uh, than Joe Burrow right now. There are many games where you come out and you say, Justin Herbert had four or five really, really good plays. Spe some spectacular plays. But the whole body of work beyond that wasn't great. Burrow is absolutely the opposite. It's a lot more consistent. Plus, there's a lot on Burrow's plate. When he's dropping back yeah. 45, 50 times in a game, a lot of times in empty, behind a rough offensive line, uh, not that the Chargers are much better from an O-line standpoint. I'm just saying it is a pass-first attack that the Bengals are running where Herbert's working a little bit more of play action and creating those deep shots. With Burrow, it's interesting. We could actually use similar analysis that we used with Josh Allen last year where Josh Allen graded well up to 20 yards and we just look at the deep ball and say, okay, it was horrible, right. but it has to get better. And it gets better a lot of times because of your receiving talent and that's what's happened with Allen. If Burrow maintains his 90-plus grade throwing up to 20 yards like he has, the deep stuff is going to show up, and before you know it, that's a complete quarterback. So, so here you go, Steve. Using, using something some guy cobbled together called PFFIQ. You may have heard of it. Um, Joe Burrow, we have, what is it, six stable metrics yes. grading things that are supposed to be predictive. Look at you using right? our tools. Joe Burrow is in the 60th or better percentile in every single one of them, right? Justin Herbert is in the... He's only above 50 in two of them. So two out of the six, or four out of the six, he's below the 50th percentile. Joe Burrow is above the 60th percentile in every single one of them. And obviously, 
the reverse is kind of true with the unstable stuff. Like Justin Herbert's in the 97th percentile in third and fourth downgrade, the 81st under pressure. Those are the things that are unstable that don't tend to sustain year on year. This is the Carson Wentz thing. This is 2017 Carson Wentz, where it's like, yes, at the time, it's incredible. And it may, you, it's well-deserved to talk about Carson Wentz as an MVP candidate back then. And we can talk about Justin Herbert as a Rookie of the Year candidate right now. But if you're looking at it and projecting it forward, what you have to ask is, does that continue? And the answer is almost certainly no. This is the best analysis you've ever had. Thank you. Thank you. The PFF NFL podcast is brought to you by PFF IQ. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam, for tapping into it. If you are a player evaluator at the NFL level, keep an eye out for PFF IQ coming soon. Uh, so who do you like in this game? Tennessee by oh, five the Titans. and a half. I mean, yeah. Tennessee's going to look like a Super Bowl contender. Again. I don't see how the Bengals stop that Titans offense, at which point it almost doesn't matter what, like, Burrow's got to play out of his mind. To, I really hope William Jackson plays just to see him and A.J. Brown match up. I love, I just love those good matchups. So Dude, I Jackson, like Tennessee as well. Jackson's frustrating. He should be better than he is. <sighs> I know. Peaked as a rookie. Uh, Tennessee. Not even a rookie. It was like year one, but second season because he tore a peck in, uh, as his rookie season. Not Tennessee. Thanks for cutting me off because I was saying the wrong thing. Game of the week, New York Jets at the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> Chiefs by 104. Yeah, 19 and a half is the spread right now. I, I honestly thought I was going to see 28. I really thought this was going to be like a Clemson, Georgia so, Tech type of Okay, well, first spread. of all, give us give us the – what's uh, I, I, didn't, okay. I didn't look forward well, to Well, then what I will do is instead – it's 19 and a half points, right? <laughs> I think a lot of people are saying that that's soft. If anything, <laughs> if anything it's more – the other way uh just in terms of our um pff power ratings as we talked about before how good a team is on a neutral field the chiefs are nine and a half points better than average right the jets are 8.2 worse than average so there's what a 17.7 point spread just from like just from showing up just from yeah just yeah. from being there in the elo rankings in terms of like what our data says about these two teams there's an immediate 18 and a half point spread between them I would like to pose the question of what would need to happen for the Jets to win this game? I think, you know, so we've got offensive line rooms grabbing the COVID. Immediately, you have to lose Mahomes, right? Yeah. They cannot win this game if Mahomes is playing. What would have to happen is introducing Kansas City Chiefs starting quarterback Chad Henney. Right. That's step one. Step one, right. Immediately, you have to take Mahomes out of the game. Otherwise step two, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. <laughs> And Chris Jones. You just lose everybody. Tyron Matthew. Yeah. And then you're good. Um, it would have to start with Mahomes. I don't know. So I'm of the mind that the Jets are bad, but much like the Dolphins last year, first half of the season were like disastrous bad. Like mm. they were a, a quality SEC team for the first eight games. Then they started to kind of play teams tough in the second half. And may, did we start to see that last week with the Jets against the Bills? At the very least, keep the ball in front of you and make them dink and dunk down the field. Can the Jets at least do that? Or was that like their one shot at like avoiding or it's their one and it's, it's the second game against a division opponent right. and you're at home and all that stuff's happening. Because like the weeks before, the thing that was really concerning about the Jets is that they weren't even playing hard. Like they weren't even making it difficult for teams. They were just rolling over. This week, they at least looked like they were interested in winning a game for at yeah. least a half, right? Until the second half where they gained four yards. But, like, that might have been their shot. That might have been the one game that every team tends to have, even terrible teams, where it's really hard to go 0-16. Because one week, you're going to be feeling it. You're going to wake up. The coffee's kicked in. 
and you're in a good place and you just play better than you thought you were going to and you get a shock win that might have been their one effort at that and now you got to play the Chiefs and you're going to get shellacked for 40 points I, I am wondering how much the Chiefs do the, you know put on Mahomes in this game because they've been winning in just you know unexciting fashion they scored 43 last week but it was you know a kick return pick six and all that stuff um, you're not getting that dominant ridiculous Mahomes outing are they just sitting on those as yeah we'll pull that out when we need it or is it this week all right let's go crush the Jets throw for five touchdowns in the first half and take a break um <laughs> I think the Chiefs dominate this one Jets fans yes Saturday at noon Boston College Ooh. takes on Clemson noon right. start Halloween uh, Justin uh, Trevor Lawrence is coming off of uh, his uh, a grade in the 60s a 67 passing grade so far this year in six games he's got three games over 90 and 84 and two games in the 60s so we want to see Trevor Lawrence bounce back had two turnover worthy plays in that he's actually got six turnover worthy plays over the last three weeks hmm. so not to put a damper on the Jets future here but Trevor is showing some signs of weakness right now no he's still awesome um, but yeah check that out noon Eastern Boston College that would be like Clemson. the worst thing you could possibly do, the Jets fans. The only thing they've got going is you're going to get Trevor Lawrence at the end of the Trevor season. Trevor Lawrence is losing it. He's then, like careless he's with the ball. Started to point out flaws in Trevor Lawrence game. Now the whole thing, like, forget about it. We're I going. do want to, I want some actual Jets analysis really quick. Okay. There were some rumors about Quinn and Williams being drafted. There were some bad takes Traded. by Bucky Brooks saying that he's not playing well. Um, Quinnen is playing much better this year than he was last year. Disruptive in the run game. He is flying off the ball hand position a lot a lot of things are good he's blowing up interior offensive linemen uh top 20 pass rusher this year as an interior lineman so if you're number three overall expectations he might you know two year he's below that yeah he's not there yet but he's improving and getting better and it's certainly not a guy that you're just going to flip for a third or fourth rounder at this point in his career which is i think the state of things right is that everybody like a lot of teams are calling about quinn and williams because yeah, like, obviously we'll give you a third we'll give you a four yeah because obviously the jets are in essentially sell mode their season's done teams are trying to acquire him but if you're the jets he's exactly the kind of player you want in a rebuild you don't want to be shopping him unless the offer is insane and I, I like I, I think they're two very far apart things right now. The team's trying to get him versus what the Jets will actually take for him. I don't think they're particularly close to meeting. Chiefs to win and cover the nineteen and a half. Oh God! I mean, sure. Why not? I, I really thought it was going to be twenty five, so I'll take the Chiefs to cover. I really, <laughs> I really thought that. So. <sighs> hey guys, life is full of questions. Like, what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments compensated endorser products issued by member companies of western and southern financial group cincinnati ohio let's go uh indianapolis colts at the detroit lions i like this matchup sneaky good game in this one colts have they've had a fairly easy schedule to this point and the lions are after this game hitting that easy part of their schedule to the point where i said on monday they're going to make a little playoff run but you got to get by the colts first and colts are favored by three what are you looking for in this colts lions matchup Kenny Galladay against Xavier, temporarily at least, roads closed again. Um, 
Kenny Galladay is just fun to watch. Like, I don't know if he's worth the hype that some other people seem to hold him in, but the guy made six contested catches last week. They were all freaky. Did you um, just call out George? No. They were all George freaky. George had Galladay as the number one receiver in the uh, NFC North before the season. Tell him how wrong was he? I mean, you know, I think he was pretty wrong. Devontae Adams is the best receiver in the NFC North. Cool. Carry on. Um, so after that, you've got him going up against Xavier Rhodes, who has been really good this year. Like, it wasn't just Sam Darnold throwing him a couple of picks that inflated his numbers. That certainly helped. But, like, he's been playing well. His numbers are completely different to where they were in the last couple of seasons in Minnesota. He's basically an advertisement for how, like, maybe sometimes you shouldn't ask a guy to play hurt, banged up, in a, you know, hang, hanging him out to dry in a I mean, scheme that's not that's, helping him. Do you think that's the majority of his decline? Yeah, it's, I mean, what it's looking like it, right? He's a different guy right now. So the two, the only two things are changed. He went to a completely different environment. Either the whole thing is scheme-related, and I don't think the schemes are that different, or he was playing hurt. And, he, like, the guy spent most of his last two years in Minnesota, like, going out after a few plays, nursing something, right? So I think it's it's not a giant leap to think that he was battling through a bunch of stuff during that time, at which point, like, again, this idea of, you know, uh, this player battling through something is better than his backup. Like, there's probably a line at which that isn't true anymore. And Xavier Rhodes was almost certainly over it for the past couple of seasons. There was a rumor that Kenny Galladay was almost traded to the New York Giants. Wow. And, I mean, it speaks to a couple things. The Lions, who should be, you know, trying to make a little playoff run here, and the Giants who because they're in the NFC East, they can't get eliminated officially until like, you know, late December, if they're going to be. Um, the Giants think that they're players right now and have a chance. I mean, they are, right? They, I mean, they technically are, but the fact that... They're half a game back in the division. Yeah, I understand. But they're still looking to this year to uh, to make a move with Kenny Galladay. I think that's... This is the thing that sort of yeah. interests me about the NFC East, right? <laughs> because technically they're all still in it, right? They're every, all buyers. Every team is just another piece away from a playoff run on the other hand does it matter like if you get to the playoffs with your five win team like do you honestly think you're going to win against a good team like you're just going to get your ass kicked and go home like what is there any point i guess in my my question is is there a positive purpose to winning the division only to get your ass kicked and get booted out of the playoffs and be taken in the 20s it depends on where you are in your life cycle as general manager or right. Head coach. So the so the only purpose essentially is to extend the life of the people in the building. Correct. Okay. Yes. That's not a. And both of these, yeah, I mean, both Detroit and the Giants are interestingly in that place, right? You know, where they've it's a pivotal year for Dave Gettleman. It's you know, for Bob Quinn in Detroit. Um, I like Detroit, man. I like the way they're coming together. I like the way the passing offense is starting to look like we thought it would before the season. I don't know if we get elite Matthew Stafford again this week, but anything close. I like it. I don't think the Colts are as good defensively as they looked those first few weeks, right? Yeah, I could buy that. I mean, yeah, I think that was a little bit of a, an over-inflation of how good they were. I think they are still a good defense, though, um, and that's being borne out. And this is a really fun matchup. It is. It's a good one. I like, I, I like watching what Detroit has done defensively. They were getting some pressure. Can they get pressure on Phillip Rivers? That's going to determine this one as well. Does he start throwing the ball to the other team? Yeah. Or if the Colts can keep them clean like they did the first five weeks. Which doesn't necessarily necessitate pressure. Like Phillip Rivers right. is just having those spasms at the moment. But the way Detroit, they were they were scheming it up 
phantom pressure has been getting to Rivers as well. That's my point. Yeah. yeah, I like I like Detroit in this one, and they're and they're three point underdogs. So I'm going to finally take an underdog, home dog, man. Go get them. Yep. Go get those Lions. All right, here we go. Tua, Tua time. Yes. Three and a half point underdog against the Rams. <sighs> Weird stuff happens in Miami, Sam. Rams at the Dolphins. Can the Rams? Here's the, the pressing question: Is this? Can the Rams also? No, they can't win the the AFC East. They already lost to the Bills. Forget <laughs> the it. AFC East. I was going to say, could they could they sweep the AFC East God, as that well? Would be incredible. Could you imagine? Rams, Aaron Donald, West Coast team, king of the East. Right, that'd be great. At Miami, what are you looking for here? I mean, it's all Tua and how he survives behind that offensive line facing Aaron Donald. Basically, so. This is an interesting analysis of how much Miami is actually aware of all of the situations or all of the circumstance pressing on what they've, they've done, right? They've decided the Tua is an upgrade over Fitzpatrick, or at the very least, they need to start seeing what they have because of what we've seen from Burrow and Herbert. Um, if they are sensible, they understand that their offensive line is not in good shape and that even if it's much better than it was a year ago, it's still bad. And it's still more than bad enough to cause problems for a young quarterback. And Fitzpatrick has been really helping it out over the first few games, right? And they also should know that they're facing Aaron Donald, right? All of those things put together should lead you to seeing a very, very concerted and obvious game plan to mitigate all of those factors, right? If they don't, this feels like it will be a bad day at the office for Tua. Um, so I think the thing to watch is what does this game plan look like right out of the gate for the Dolphins? Like, what are they going to try and do to mitigate all of those things we talked about? And is it the right thing to do? Because there's still this world where a lot of NFL coaches believe that the single biggest thing you can do to protect your quarterback is to run the ball in first and 10, right? Whereas actually that's the thing that like, undermines him. It puts him in a harder position on third and eight when you actually need him to be, when you need his life to be easier. As of two weeks ago, uh, Dr. Eric Eager has his, um, we, have to, we have to keep him hidden for various reasons, but um, he, he had his rankings of offensive and defensive coordinators and had both Dolphins coordinators in the top five, offense and defense. And, and it generally stems from how well are you playing compared to your grades and a little bit from a decision-making standpoint. Are you, are you, you know, play action and not running into walls and all that stuff. So I think the Dolphins will be okay there. What make a prediction? What 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 is the feeling on Tua coming out of his first start? What do you think the what do you think we're talking about Monday morning as far as our you know reaction to his first game? I think this will go down as a disappointing start and it won't be his fault. I think whatever game plan they're going to have will not be tremendously successful at limiting the impact of Aaron Donald and limiting the impact of Aaron Donald at the same time as maximizing the potential of Tua, at which point when, like, you're going to come out of this game thinking, you know, I, I mean, is Tua, should they have picked Justin Herbert? Oh, boy. That's, what's gonna, that's the Monday narrative, right? Should the Dolphins have picked Justin Herbert? And I think the whole thing is going to be bullshit, but that's the situation they put themselves in. I, I think they'll be more <clears throat> positive than negative with Tua. I think, you know, I, I compared him to Jimmy Garoppolo coming out for a couple reasons. That most of the game he's going to look quick release and all these good things are happening, but he'll hold the ball a tick long a couple times. I think there'll be a few rookie-ish plays in there, but he also has this – he's got some natural playmaking ability to him too. I think there'll be enough flashes that people are feeling good about Tua, but I like the Rams 
in this one. I like the way their defense is playing, though, too. Underrated part of that, beyond just Donald. Luckily, though, some cool stuff on the back they'll end. be able to uh, have that protective game plan and run the ball for 200 yards because Aaron Donald is such a liability against the run. Don't even start. <sighs> Did Brian Burke, he already went on uh, Kev Cole's podcast. Did he? But um, I don't even want to have him on here to explain it because it's just bad. It is. It's ESPN run defense metric that has Aaron Donald historically, or last year as an average run defender, not necessarily this year. And some of the examples that have been shown of him as a poor run defender are poor analysis. Yeah, they're That's just, it. they're ridiculous. That's the problem, right? I think the point that he's trying to make, why did I just go all squeaky there? I don't know. The point that he's trying to make sure. is not wholly without merit, right? I think you can make an argument that there are plays where Aaron Donald is over aggressive and takes himself out of the play on routine run plays that are problematic for a defense, right? And whether it's Donald or whether it's the fact that you're embracing that style as a defense, it's not good. Um, on the other hand, I think they're also using a few different data points that are just not telling the whole story about Donald's impact against the run, right? There's a lot of things he does in terms of that penetration that are good and not and you're not giving him credit for that. In fact, if anything, you're penalizing him for it because of the way this system works, right? There's a whole discussion, I think, that's very valid to be had with that. On the other hand, the discussion that is currently being had is Brian Burke going out there with a bunch of plays that are just ridiculous. They're dumb. They're stupid. And if you ran that past anybody who knows what they're looking at, they would say, okay, don't tweet those out. That would make you look very stupid. Well, he said he's got 40 of them. And he's done it twice now, yeah. right? He did it earlier where and, and was the same reaction, right? Everyone was like, what are you talking about? Those are actually positive Donald plays for the most part. And most of them are definitely not negative, right? He doubled down on it. Like, if you took that weight of crap the first time around, would you not be like, all right, <laughs> I, I still think I'm right. But at the very minimum, the next time when I get my 40 gifts, I'm going to run it past somebody in the building who knows what they're doing and can tell me if these are good plays to tweet or not to make this point. He didn't do that. Went out with the same thing and is immediately shellacked again. There's one play where there's literally no defensive body in either A gap. They run right up the middle and he's like, well, Donald shot his B gap here and took himself out of the play. This is bad. Like, what? I, I can't. I, like, the brain doesn't even function to generate a response to that. It's just, what are you doing? I appreciate ESPN's effort to try to quantify things like that, but I do not think they're doing a good job of it. How's that? My dipl diplomatic answer. I, it also feels like they're trying to take, you know, we grade every single player on every play, right? There's a, you know, might be a thousand snaps for a player. I feel like they're trying to put positive or negative on everything and maybe losing sight of the neutral plays. There are many just you're playing your gap and the guy blocking is cool with where you're playing your gap, like neutral plays. I think there's a lot of that that's just not being... Not being pulled out of the uh, ESPN analysis, Aaron Donald's still a very disruptive run defender. Uh, so we like the Rams in this one? Yeah. By three and a half, they're going to cover that on the road? Sure. I think it's I think it's close. At Miami, crazy stuff. New England at Buffalo, Patriots going to first place Buffalo Bills. Uh, wow. The Patriots in danger of falling to two and five. Yeah. Coming off a disastrous outing against the 49ers the bills with a workmanlike 19 to 10 win 19 18, 18 to 10 right? all field goals. against the jets six for eight on field goals this feels like a game where new england can at least 
bounce back. Buffalo's got the lowest rated run defense by us. Um, they've been absolutely destroyed on the ground, whether it was game plan oriented or not against the Chiefs. Who knows? They do not have the bodies to hold up against a good power run game, whether it's by design or not. This feels like the game where the Patriots, they're getting written off a little bit when they maybe they, they drop 250 on the ground. Yeah. Now, it might only lead to 20 points, <laughs> but I, I think run game-wise, I think New England's they're going to look more efficient offensively, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree that this is the game where every now and again New England does this, where they just run the ball into the ground and dominate a team on uh, in the run game, and that's how they that's their game plan for this game. This is the game where that would happen, and I think it'll probably be reasonably successful because, as you say, the Bills just don't defend the run well. Even if they voluntarily made it worse, essentially against Kansas City, I think I don't think they can stop a powerful ground game, particularly not one that leans on Cam Newton as that extra game-changing body and, and uh, difference maker. So I think the Patriots will have some success. The interesting thing is going to be the other side of the ball, whether the Patriots' defense can stop Buffalo's offense because the Patriots' defense hasn't been good either. Like, they got wrecked by the 49ers. Um, Kyle Shanahan just completely dominated that game plan. And they had a game plan. Like, they rolled out there with that sort of six-man defensive front to try and shut down all the wide zone stuff, and it just didn't work. So... Are, is the Patriots' defense now in a spot where they just don't have the bodies to execute what they want to do? Yeah, I mean that's a great question because I want to know, I want to know what they do on the uh, the Josh Allen apology tour here. Uh, Josh Allen last year against New England, the first game in Buffalo, wor- one of the worst games by a quarterback all last season. He was a little bit better in New England. Uh, the Patriots tend to make life difficult for opposing quarterbacks overall, but hasn't been the case as much this year. So, uh, Allen only a 65 grade since I ripped up that sheet of paper. So, does he uh, does he get back to um, making you look right for apologizing to him? That's my big question here. Post apology, Allen. Post apology, Allen has looked a lot like pre 2020 Allen, which is a little bit concerning. Um, I do think there's there's a weird degree to which this offense relies on John Brown, which I haven't quite unpacked yet. I don't. Well, here's here know it is why. because defending three receivers, and I know Davis has played well for them, but like defending three receivers is difficult. And they built a receiving core with three very unique skill sets: a speed receiver in Brown, a slot receiver in Cole Beasley, an all around weapon in Stephon Diggs who wins at every level. Yeah, just matching up with that, especially for a Patriots D that plays matchups, is very difficult. That last part is the problem, right? Stephon Diggs can do that stuff as well. Why is there not a more seamless transition between the deep threat from John Brown and the deep threat that isn't there when he isn't on the field? Why are they not able to plug Stephon Diggs into those roles, or even Gabriel Davis, and say? You're the deep threat in this game. Make it happen. Yeah, I mean, there, there are questions about that. But, I mean, Browns he's a better deep threat. I mean, he's a better pure speed threat than those guys. Sure. And you don't want Diggs just, you know, he's not just running deep posts and overs all, all day. No, but he you could have all. him do it and it would be fine is my point. And yet it isn't. Yeah, I mean, the thing the thing with Allen, um, that the, the, as much as I talk about domes and all that stuff, you also have to understand that Allen's, all, you know, he throws in lesser conditions as well too. So I think statistically he's always going to have to regress just a little bit, um, especially, you know, the wind and Buffalo and the things that he has to deal with. But um, I want to see if this Bills passing offense can get back on track. So yeah, it should be a good matchup. Does New England, like this is, if they fall to two and five, they're done, right? That's yeah. their season. They might already be done. I mean, they're talking about shipping off Stephon Gilmore. They may already be 
mailing it in for next season. I like the Bills. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if New England pulls this one off. Yeah, I'm in the same kind of boat, I think. I think Buffalo will win, but it really wouldn't shock me if this was the game where we come out of it saying, oh, the Patriots are actually okay. Yeah. Las Vegas Raiders at the Cleveland Browns. Uh, the, the Raiders uh, got destroyed last week against the Bucks. They've been just a weird team, right? They beat the Saints. Yeah. They just, you know, sneak up on some teams. But overall, it seems like the weaknesses we thought that they had coming in, which is the back seven, has been a major weakness, especially against good passing offenses. Yeah, um, I'm curious. The Browns are very bad against the deep ball. Uh, their secondary is not great. Um, when you're relying on Andrew Sandejo playing a decent role in, as a coverage safety, that's a problem. Um, so I think they've been giving up a pass rating of like 117, something like that, to deep passes. We've been talking all season long about how like the key to this Raiders offense is Henry Ruggs and what he does to Derek Carr and the deep ball that they have as a threat that wasn't there before, um, which doesn't always manifest itself in targets to Henry Ruggs. It can be targets to Nelson Aguilar or whatever, but the point is it's open in a way it wasn't before. That's a particularly enticing option against this Cleveland secondary. Like, does that cause Derek Carr to just be hyper-aggressive in this game and put up some points? Or does he not take an advantage of it enough and, you know, now you have to stop Cleveland's offense? I, I like Cleveland in this one. I think I think we're not saying, you know, Baker's going to be better without OBJ, but I think they're start, they can take advantage of their skill sets. They like to throw to the tight ends. They'll scheme up some tight end stuff. Higgins will work the short and in, intermediate stuff. We see more Donovan Peoples-Jones maybe being a deep threat. I can't wait to see what baker does and if he can maintain the level of play or close to it what he had last week i think the matchup against the raiders does favor that so i like cleveland two and a half here at home i think they'll cover it mm, I, I the baker thing just scares me i just don't trust him as a quarterback right now don't bet on volatile quarterbacks like baker that's the that's the bottom line yeah stay away from that but uh, i guess i'm going cleveland this week we got another division matchup, a couple more to get through here. Chargers at the Broncos. Uh, if you guys, if you're a Chargers fans and you clicked on this part of the podcast or you fast forwarded to hear your Chargers analysis, go back to the Bengals analysis because we did get into some of the Herbert versus Burrow discussion. Good, You'll probably hate it because we said Herbert's doing great, but he's probably not going to keep it going. It's a good thing we put timestamps, otherwise you just pissed a lot of people off. Yeah, so go back to the Bengals analysis for a little bit, Burrow uh, versus Herbert, uh, how about Drew Locke though for the Broncos? He's about what we expected, right? A, not not good. the franchise guy necessarily, and not the guy that you coming into the, the season. To. Coming into the season, I wrote quarterback rankings that actually put rankings on people as opposed to yours with the tiers, the, the fence sitter rankings as we call yeah, them. I mean the tiers, and tiers I ranked Drew Locke, I think thirty second in the NFL, dead last. And Broncos fans hated that. They thought I was an idiot. They thought it was crazy. Look at all the good things he did last year. And like he's had one good game, right? One good game where he looked, oh, well, maybe I got that wrong. So I wrote new ones and I think I moved him up one spot on the basis that Washington went from Haskins, who was bad, to Kyle Allen, who's also bad. Whatever. Drew Locke has not been the guy they thought he would be. He hasn't taken this big step forward. He really just hasn't developed he's made one game where he started throwing the ball around actually making some big time throws and ironically in that game nobody caught them or people broke them up in the end zone so his passer rating was like 30 but yeah, his best game had a passer rating of 30 against right. the Patriots. but well, we, we gave him proper credit for it we just haven't seen good drew lock uh as this is happening twitter cbs hq is tweeting out justin herbert's 2020 stats and their all-time rank in his first five career games Second in passing yards, tied for fourth in passing touchdowns, fifth in completion percentage, Sam. 
And fourth in passer rating at 108.1. I take it all back. Herbert's going to the Hall of Fame. It did. Uh, this The article is interesting because it's the headline is PFF throws shade on Drew Locke and his mom. What? Yeah. Who called you out on that? Was one of the... This is SI. The Austin's just dropped in the chat. I... I I don't have time to read that and this figure was before out how, the he, season? how he slandered his mother, but apparently we hate his mother as well. SI.com. I mean, I don't know. Drew Locke, they won games last year kind of, you know, while he was the quarterback, not because they, he was the yeah, quarterback. Yeah, I mean, they, they've, they've assembled receivers to help him out to make him look better. I think it was the right approach. We were talking all offseason. I applaud exactly what they did, knowing that they couldn't start over, right? They didn't have the luxury of blowing it all up and getting another quarterback and going through this whole John Elway finding quarterback thing again. They had to roll with Drew Locke. And he hasn't stepped up yet, except one game. Now, granted, Cortland Sutton's been out. Right. They haven't had all the guys, but, man, you still want to see more from Locke. If, you, if it's going to be the guy you're tying your franchise to, what else are you looking for in this game, matchup-wise? Uh, I mean, obviously, the Justin Herbert thing is interesting, but Garrett Bowles has quietly taken a big step forward this year. You know why? Why? The NFL stopped calling holding. <laughs> that definitely the helps. The guy who has 15 to 17 penalties per year. That, and that's really, I mean, if, if you take out those plays, really he's is. really good. So the NFL stops calling holding. I mean, somebody tell the Broncos this, that they're going to stop calling holding before they decline his fifth-year option. Yeah. Poor Broncos get screwed here. You're right. He's been flagged twice this season. That's pretty much it. That's the difference. It really is. <laughs> other than the fact that he gets whooped and just, you know, tackles guys, he's pretty good. Like, he's a reasonable run blocker. He he's, had 17 you know, penalties last year. Right. I need to find out how many you're holding, but most of them. Probably. Four so. sacks last year, none, I think, this year. Yeah, you're right. It's basically the difference is Garrett Bowles has gone from being a good player who every now and again gets whooped and tackles somebody to being a good That's player it. who every now and again gets whooped and tackles somebody and they no longer call it as a penalty. Like, if we got this memo from the NFL, hey, we're going to stop holding, we'd, oh, Garrett, go. Garrett's going to be the best tackle in the league this year. <laughs> to be fair, like the bad beats were what got him before. This season, he's only allowed like four total pressures. Oh, yeah. So like he that's has, it's not just the holding, but that's that's probably a big part of it. Plus he quote tweets when we say nice stuff about him. The point is, the guy's gone from being a potential liability, though I think it was always overblown how bad he was because they were all holding penalties right. and became like highlight things, to a really good player. He now goes up against the Chargers, yes. edge rushers, who are a problem, obviously. And Bulls hits free agency as they declined his five, uh, fifth year option. Uh, from a Herbert standpoint, I just want to see a, I want to see more of a complete game. I know he's completing 67% of his passes, um, but he still, last week he missed a ton. Um, I want to see more of the sustainable stuff. The stable stuff, Sam, that you listed earlier mm -hmm. from Herbert. I like the Chargers in this one. They're favored by three at Denver. Sunday night football, a classic NFC East matchup, the Dallas Cowboys at the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. Eagles by nine. Right. What? The, the two, four, and one Philadelphia Eagles are favored by nine. And you know what? It's not crazy. Nobody has faith. Well. It's not nuts. Here's my fun, my favorite stat of the week. The using, using PFF stuff, again, you go to the power ratings page on PFF Greenline. We have a quarterback metric that's essentially the number of points difference that they make to the spread if they're not in the lineup, right? So if you remove Patrick Mahomes, as we talked about, how much does that make a difference to the betting line? Nine and a half points versus a replacement player for Patrick Mahomes. So with the Chad Henney Chiefs would be favored by 10 over the Jets? Yes. Okay. Um, Give or take. Now... Oh, effectively every quarterback is worth something over replacement, right? That's why they're starting and not replacement players. Do you know the one player that is not a positive impact in the spread 
versus replacement. Ben DiNucci? Yes. According to our data, the Dallas Cowboys get half a point better in the spread Ben DiNucci if a replacement-level player and not Ben DiNucci is their starting quarterback. Like? Anybody. Kellen Moore. Garrett Gilbert. Pick a guy off the street. Throw him in there. And- I want Kellen Moore. I want Kellen Moore to call, activate himself, call the plays, whip it around. Kellen Moore has a 400-yard passing game in this league. Yeah. I mean, this is genuinely saying if you just claimed a guy off somebody else's practice squad, threw him into the starting lineup, you'd be half a point better off than if you have Ben DiNucci in there. Cowboys should be buyers. Go get Fitz. <laughs> get yourself some Fitz. Get some Trubisk. Get somebody. Oh, I just think that's a great stat. Andy Dalton got that. That cheap shot might keep him out. The concussion from last week. Did not practice Wednesday. I mean, I think will. I don't, there's no way they're Concussion protocol. That. So if it is DiNucci in the nine-point nine spread. I mean, not only is it it's Danucci, who poor guy probably doesn't have a shot anyway, behind one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL because everyone's got hurt. They're probably getting, um, who's a right guard? Zach Martin. There you go. Yeah. Zach Martin, perennial all pro. Guy you'd forget easily. Um, Zach Martin's probably coming back from his concussion protocol, but outside of him, everybody else is hurt. Um, and they're buried in the depth yard. Like Cameron Irving is starting a left tackle for them consistently. That's not good. So he's just got, and you're going up against an Eagles defense and the line is still in pretty good shape you've got your guy brandon graham chasing your sack record Ooh, you've got yes. he might get you might only launch next week right you've got fletcher cox still dominating like the eagles are still able to get pressure i just i don't see how this cowboys offense can function and we already know the defense is terrible so the eagles are nine point favorites and i think they're good for it the uh dallas defense will be completely turned around though because daryl worley and his perfect passer rating against has been released and Dontari Poe has also been released, owner of one pressure, mm. on 134 pass rushes this year. Yeah. They cited weight and play as the reason for his release. <laughs> so, Poe and Worley are out. Yeah. Dallas has to make some adjustments on the defensive side of the ball. Maybe that's the start. They do. I like Philly. The Eagles could take a commanding lead in the division now. 3-4-1. and one. Yeah. I mean, still a game behind Eagles, the Rams. My famous line here in the first half of the season, better than they look, or yeah, the Eagles have to be a little better than they've showed. I don't think they are, but I think they'll get better as people get healthier. I mean, Jalen Rager is coming back off IR. I, like, they're going to get healthier, which will make them better, but they still, they're not good. Right, let's wrap it up with Monday Night Football. Tampa Bay Bucks at the New York Giants. The Gi- For the second straight week, so there were some trends with the Bucks this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they just faced back-to-back teams coming off of buys, and now they face a team coming off of a 10-day Monday, you know, Thursday night football. They've also faced back-to-back teams with the whole O-line in quarantine during the week. So the Raiders last week, and this week it's the Giants. Not the defensive front you need to be quarantined and not practicing against if they're going to play this game Monday night. Well, the good news is JPP doesn't watch tapes. We won't know any better. Man, that was the question. You really wanted to ask that Joe Thomas about that last week. Well, also, Joe Thomas wanted to be asked about that. He has takes, apparently, so we have to get him back on. We'll get Joe back on the show to discuss that, yeah. Um, the Bucks defense has looked really good the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. The offense has looked really good the last couple weeks. Giants defense has been sneaky good compared to what they, you know, were supposed to be coming in. But yeah. the offense is just not moving the ball consistently. No, and this feels like it's going to be tough sledding for them, right? You're going up against a defensive line that should cause problems, whether you have your offensive line or not. And they've got yes. they've got coverage guys in the back end that can lock up your receivers, which are probably the strength of that offense. So if this is another game where you're going to come out of it and you're like, poor old Daniel Jones, they, I mean, this was the, does he have a shot? This was Jones' first start last year, though. It was against Todd Bowles. 
He made a lot of key plays under pressure. Um, but this also feels like the game that's like a 60% under pressure game. Like yeah. they're getting after him over 50% of the time. Right. And he's taking some direct shots he's, from linebackers and things like that. He's the most pressured quarterback in the NFL by percentage of dropbacks. 44%, yeah. I think, which really again bad. is like nuts. So it should be a beatdown if they play this game. Yeah. Chris Godwin's hurt for the Bucs. Yep. But he should be back for the following week against the Saints on Sunday Night Football, also when Antonio Brown is supposed to make his debut. Mm -hmm. So we've both taken the Bucs to cover 10.5 on the road here. 10.5 is a lot. Wow. Really? Definitely taking them to win. But, I mean, if, they ha if the Giants have their offensive line, they will cover. If they don't, they won't. All right. if, they don't, if they don't, it won't be played. I'll but. take the Bucs to cover. Uh, Antonio Brown coming to the Bucs. We've discussed it with our guest here, Kevin Clark. He yes. wrote all about it. Uh, great interview with Kevin Clark from The Ringer. So that'll do it for the game previews. Let's get to Kevin and discuss Antonio Brown, rugby, Mustaches. and the best Kevin Clarks in the world. That too. All right. Happy to be joined by Kevin Clark of The Ringer. Kevin Welcome, and tell everybody, before we start, where can everybody find all your great work so they know? So I host the Ringer NFL show twice a week. Uh, this week we have Mike Tannenbaum, Ryan Shazier, Nora Princiati. On Sundays we have Nora. And then Slow Newsday, which we had Peter King on this week, and he dropped some heaters. I actually just saw the Boston Globe aggregated some of his Tom Brady comments. So uh, Slow Newsday doesn't always make news, but we did this week because – Peter King was ready to just drop bombs on the New England Patriots. Nice. What a what a crew. Nora, she's a she's a colleague. She's always fascinated about my uh you know, by Doug Kide. You know, her cousin Doug? Her yeah, cousin Doug. <laughs> she always she just can't get over the fact that that's my my wife's stepmom's cousin's daughter's husband. Yeah. Right? So cousin uh -huh. Doug, you know, so we're just ask Nora about that one. How um, did you discover that? Uh, I think question. my uh, my wife's stepmom said, "Hey, do you know Doug?" And I said, yeah, he's a Twitter friend. They, you know, Twitter friend. We all have their sure. Twitter friends. And uh, she said, well, my cousin's daughter is marrying him. So then, and then there was like one family reunion. We, we met up. I was like, hey, Doug, it's about time. We, you know, we see each other every year at the combine and stuff like that. And then at one fan, random family reunion. And, you know, we were telling Nora about that one time. And she just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And I always tried to figure out what it was. Like what that, what the ties were. And then my good friend, Mike Tannenbaum. You're not related to him as well. Not right? at all. Okay. Just a good friend like Mike. So that's great. Check out all Kev's stuff. Let's talk some NFL, man. Uh, you were right about Antonio Brown recently. That's the big news with him signing to the Tampa Bay Bucks. What are your thoughts on yeah. the whole situation? So on the field, if he can stay on the field, it's probably going to work out. But that doesn't mean this is a move that the Bucks should have done. I, I saw an analogy uh, a couple of days ago that I really liked, which is this is like hitting in blackjack when you're on 18 or 19. You know, I, maybe it works out, but you don't really need to do it because I think this is the sign of a desperate team. And when I actually watch the Bucks play, they shouldn't be desperate at all. They're one of the most complete teams in the NFC and they, sh they might make the Super Bowl. And so I'm curious to know why. I know Tom Brady was pushing for it. I know Jason, Mike and Bruce Arians, you know, kind of wanted to, to, I guess they gave in to his eight months pleading um, after essentially it was ruled out in March. But from my perspective, I just don't know why you take a chance on a guy who there are now three teams and say what you will about John Green and Mike Mayock, but I think they're three really smart organizations, Kevin Colbert and Mike Tomlin. 
Bill Belichick, the Raiders, they've all given up on Antonio Brown. They've done everything they could to get him out of the building. And so I think that when you take a chance on a guy like that, that just sort of reeks of a situation that they shouldn't have to put themselves in. I don't think that they should have taken this chance. Again, it might work out because Antonio Brown is such a dominant player. Now all of a sudden Mike Evans doesn't have to be double teamed, all that stuff. It unlocks certain things in the offense. But I think there's a real chance that it, it, it derails the season off the field. And I just don't know why you take that chance uh, when things are going so well. In your, uh, in your article, you, wrote, you had this great anecdote about um, one of those sort of giant investment firms buying L'Oreal. Talk us through that. Explain it to us. Yeah, so this is something I bring up all the time with, with, um, with player evaluation. And it was two private equity guys buying Revlon. And essentially, Revlon wanted one guy to buy it. And so they gave him the books and not the other guy. And then the guy who didn't get the books bid more than the guy who, who did get the books. <laughs> And they said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, the guy who got the books is the smartest guy in the world. So if he saw the books and still bid, I know it's a good investment, right? And so when I think about player evaluation, you're never going to have a guy in the building. You're going to, so to speak, see the books, okay? But what you're going to have to do is look when smart people make decisions, go based on that, okay? So Pittsburgh wanted them hit him out of the building. He chucked a ball at Ben Roethlisberger. He went AWOL three times in 2018. In Oakland, he just did all sorts of disaster stuff. He, he tried to fight Mike Mayock. Uh, he went to war with helmet manufacturers, all that stuff. And then in New England, obviously, he sends the text messages to get him cut almost immediately as soon as the report comes out. So there's now three teams who have given up on him. What makes Bruce Arians and Jason Light think that they, this will be any different? There's no evidence, none whatsoever, that Antonio Brown has changed. There's no evidence that he's ready to be more mature than he was in his previous stops that's why I think this is a risk is because there's some teams that told us what to think about Antonio Brown. And I don't know why the Bucks would be an exception here. So I guess my question on this is what, so all of that stuff is true. The downside that they won't want him in the locker room or maybe there won't be enough footballs to go around or eventually they have to cut him. Does that affect the on-field product going forward? Just the, just talking football, just talking the on-field product. Is that actual downside? Because like when he left New England, the downside was if Antonio Brown's not there, Tom Brady has no one to throw to. Mm-hmm. The, the chance that I think the Bucks are taking is Mike Evans has played hurt, Chris Godwin has played hurt, and is hurt again. This is an insurance policy, albeit a, a volatile one, but an insurance policy for this already great receiving core. And if for some reason it doesn't work out, we still have these great players. So is that downside actually going to affect the on-field product, I guess would be the, the question. Yeah, I mean, I think it all goes hand in hand. If if Tom Brady's been asking for eight months to bring him in, and then they cut him after one game, if he's, you know, Peter King made the made the example, you know, if he's late for a meeting by one minute, do they cut him? And that seems to be the situation that Arians is, is trying to set up and, and the parameters for him joining there. And so you get into what exactly matters when it comes to the, the locker room seeping onto the on-field product. I don't know. I mean, I've never been on a football team at any sort of high level to speak on on what happens if Tom Brady gets mad if they cut him or if if Tom Brady is is now trying to exert more power in the front office, which, by the way, he probably should have. Um, right. I just don't know. From an, I don't think you can divorce on field from off field, and I, I don't know if you can you can separate the locker room from the field because I just don't know. I mean, I, I do think in a playoff 
in a playoff situation, especially a team like Tampa Bay, where things are going to probably go pretty deep, I do think chemistry tends to matter. Um, and I, I just don't know how, if you play out, you know, kind of the Doctor Strange one billion simulations thing, I don't know how often Antonio Brown screwing up off the field and getting cut can can cost them a couple of weeks of focus. I, I just don't, you know, maybe, you know, I, I've actually heard the theory that teams are more equipped to deal with distractions, quote unquote, media distractions this year, because reporters aren't in the locker room. And they're not going to, you know, go up to Mike Evans and, and, and get his candid thoughts on this sort of thing or go up to Chris Godwin or go up to Scotty Miller. Um, so, you know, these guys are doing Zoom. They're not they're not talking one on one with reporters. So it's a little bit different. So if there was some discontentment, maybe it doesn't leak out as much. So I think that it's just it is one of the most complicated situations I can remember as far as just a midseason acquisition in the last three, four or five years. And I, I'm. I agree with you in the sense that maybe there's no downside from a football standpoint. I just don't know how much of a, um, I, I don't know. I hate, I hate distraction culture. And I don't think it's very real, but I do think that someone like Antonio Brown, who has, who has derailed a couple of situations in the past, I think there's, there's the real possibility it could happen here too. Outstanding. So let's go from one distraction receiver to another one and see if you buy into this idea that, the Browns are actually the Browns and Baker Mayfield are better off without Odell Beckham. So I tend to always think that talent is better than not having talent. Okay. I think that if there's a, if there's a, a Ewing theory type of situation with a receiver in the NFL, it's usually the fault of the quarterback or the play caller or something like that, where they're trying to force the ball or they're trying to get into it. They're trying to run a system that just gets the guy the ball instead of figuring out where the ball should go, all that stuff. I've seen those comments uh, about, about maybe, maybe he's going to play better without trying to to worry about where, where Beckham is in the field. I just think if you're concerned about that, you were concerned in general with the wrong things. And if there's some sort of psychic relief that, that Beckham is out, that's probably, that probably says something about maybe the quarterback in the system. So I don't, I think this is a loss. I think the Browns are still a pretty good team. Um, I think that having Beckham would have been more beneficial than not having Beckham. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm more curious what you guys think. Is there is there something real there when you have a, a number one receiver and, and he goes out that there could be some benefit in the long run? Um, yeah, I've I've kind of tread both lines or both sides of this line. Earlier in the yeah. offseason, I was saying that it could be something for Deshaun Watson, right? You lose New Hopkins and you actually become a better quarterback Um overall because you don't have the crutch you have to actually play honest in every single snap and with baker mayfield in particular i think there might be something to it because he isn't going he isn't doing well in the mental side of this in terms of consistently going through reads in terms of you know functionally reading a defense every single snap he's zeroing in on where he wants to go with the ball and firing it at that guy like a laser and trying to miles hit, an hour right, every time and just trying to hit a bullseye and he can do that but it means that he's locked into wherever he's decided to go with the football and if you have a guy like odell beckham there you're probably going to lock in on him more often than you would if it was just rashad higgins or whoever else the receiver will be right so i think yeah. for him there might be something to him not being in the lineup and having to you know at least be more honest with where you're going with the ball yeah, I also think that system too. You got the Kubiak system, yeah. the Shanahan Kubiak, that whole tree. You see what Shanahan's doing with the Niners. Like, does he want talented players? Yes, but it's a whole bunch of talented players that you put it, you you scheme them into space and all that stuff. Um, at the same time, the Vikings 
you know, had Stefan Diggs and they had Adam Thielen. Like you actually, you need guys who can win too. But I do think there's a certain reliance on the system. To, they create plays for tight ends every single week. They create plays for all of the receivers to get open every single week. So they're less reliant, I'd say, on a number one. Um, it is interesting, though. Baker has played so much better from his rookie season to just that little snippet last week without Odell Beckham. But I don't, I don't know that that's going to completely continue. But it could actually help his development, maybe, being less reliant <laughs> on one guy. So we don't know is the answer. Nobody knows. I mean, nobody really <laughs> knows. It's all small sample size stuff. But good job at the Ewing theory. And, you know, hat tip to your boss for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a question for you because you've written a lot of stuff through the years. Um, my colleague Sam here, has uh, he's one of the many that has written Tom Brady off ah, in his yeah. career. Yeah, that happened. Back in 2014. Good thing is I did it so long ago that people are starting to forget. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've already you already went on your apology tour. Right. Like, that's so like long half ago. Half a decade the, ago. It's, the, it's perfect. Yeah. Apologies are done. So, uh, Kevin, have you ever written Tom Brady off? Are you one of those writers? No. So I was lucky in so much that I worked for the Wall Street Journal in 2014 when most, most of the writing off was happening. And we didn't really do takes back then. A lot of feature stories, a lot of big picture pieces, but no, nothing, there was no avenue for me to be like, the Patriots are totally done, okay? And, and Tom Brady's totally done. And so by the time I started to do more analysis and takes, the whole Tom Brady is done thing became such a meta narrative that almost every time, by 2016, 2017, 2018, every time he played a bad game, everybody was so afraid to say it because of people like Sam or people like Trent Dilfer who went out on a limb and said this wasn't going to work. And then they just got old take exposed into the ground. <laughs> and I think that yeah. now there's, it's, almost, it's almost like you have to joke about it. It's almost like the exact opposite of the Josh Allen thing where the only actual posture to take is to be so jokey about how good he is that you can play all sides. That's the Tom Brady decline narrative. And I, I've been hesitant to the entire time to say anything declarative about it because this is a guy who's constantly reinvent, reinvented himself. You know, I, I went back a couple years ago and just looked at how Brady was perceived in, in, in media um, the last – 20 years and it was amazing to read like bob ryan's column off of the first ram super bowl and he's saying you know brady's gonna paper cut you to death and you know he's a game manager and all this stuff and and i you know you think six years later he's he's running the 2007 patriots offense with, with welker and moss and it's just totally different and i i tend to think whenever tom brady's in a rut that he will reinvent himself in 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 a way that that makes him relevant to the team he's on and the time he's playing and and so i've always given him the benefit of the doubt and and i will it would be a long time until I write him off. He's also reached the point now where he's so far past the point that a regular human yeah. declines that there's, it's pointless even trying to anticipate it, right? Like when you're in your mid-30s, mid to late 30s, it's when you start expecting quarterbacks to start to fall off that cliff. So any, any first sign that that's happening, you jump all over and you're like, well, the guy's declining. It's the beginning of the end. Now it's like, well, it's, it's seven years after the beginning of the end should have happened. So let's just see whenever it eventually falls off. Now that the Brady and Belichick have divorced and gone their separate ways, everybody's focusing on this like credit tracker, right? Who, who was most responsible for the dynasty and who will come out of the next few years of independence, however long they last, looking better? Where do you stand on both those things? At, at, at the I time of divorce, who deserves more credit? I can't believe we're actually talking about this. And then after, after everything's said and done, when they've had a chance to independently um, burnish their legacies who comes out better gotta okay. know right now week seven 2020 <laughs> we need to know i don't think and you know i i read the tom curran column where he did a great job 
breaking this down. And, and yeah. I, I don't think that you can do it exactly. And I don't think anything going forward is going to change what happened in the past. And I know that that seems kind of cold takey, but what I, what I mean is that, you know, if you look at Jurassic Park and you say, this is a great movie, was it Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, or Steven Spielberg? And then you just go, well, you know, Jeff Goldblum was in Thor, so credit, credit. there's one for <laughs> there's one for, for Jeff Goldblum on the who deserves credit for Jurassic Park thing. I mean, like, a great team is everybody working together, okay? And I don't think you could tell the story of Tom Brady without Bill Belichick and vice versa. And I don't think we can ever find out. Everyone talks about the 2008 team with Matt Castle or the first four games of the Deflategate suspension where he was, you know, he's throwing Bill O'Brien's Texans team in a trash can with Jacoby Brissett. I don't think that that really tells us much. You know, Ryan Russo has talked a lot about how easy the 08 schedule was and how many teams, uh, how many bad teams that they got wins over and all that stuff. And so I think that it's just that that conversation eats itself after a while. And I, I, I just think it's unknowable. And there's so many things with, you know, the 07 offense that we talked about, that doesn't happen unless they get Wes Welker and reimagine everything. And Josh Daniels goes down and meets with Dan Mullen and, and Urban Meyer in Florida and figures out how to run that offense. And, and then Tom Brady takes advantage of it. So I think that they're just so linked that it's an unknowable question. And I don't think we're going to find out anything this year. And even if I got to be honest, even if this Patriots team goes five and 11 and Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl this year in Tampa, I don't think you can just go and retroactively ascribe credit to, for the, for the Seahawks Super Bowl. Right. I just don't think that that's how this works. And so I, Tom Brady's going to win this, this post uh, breakup race here because the, the bucks are awesome. And, and the Patriots are, are, going to be a pretty bad team this year and they don't have a good roster and Cam Newton can't throw to his right and has all these mechanical problems and the receivers can't get open but I don't think anything that happens now can can retroactively be uh, assigned to to who who was more responsible for things in the past lukewarm takes appreciated here nuance takes or appreciate I can't even believe we asked the question Sam I said before the season we're not going to do it I said we're not going to be the people that we're seven weeks in Let's, Kev, you said, I mean, you... you the professional you, fence-sitter amongst the two of us. I love it. the fence-sitter. <laughs> my, my official answer is maybe. Yeah. Just maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to refer to Tom Curran's breakdown, too, which was great. I, he, he basically said, you have to give credit to Belichick for the first 10 years for yeah. essentially developing, discovering, developing Tom Brady, like fostering the atmosphere for him to grow. And then maybe the next 10 years, it was more Tom Brady's team. And I looked at it as like, well, when you have Brady out there, or Breeze or whoever, you have a baseline of wins. Like you're going to stumble into eight if you have a high school team. And then beyond that, you know, Belichick makes it better and the defense makes it better or whatever it is, right? So, um, yeah, right in the middle. But don't like week two, people were overreacting the other way. Brady threw like a pick six and had a bad game statistically against the Panthers and Cam threw for 400 and people were going the other way with it. I'm not saying like now, seven weeks in, based off the first seven weeks of the season, who are we ascribing? I'm saying that... Oh, predict... 20 years time, these guys are going to have had X number of years post time together. Who is going to have burnished their legacy more? Belichick with the however many years he's going to coach minus Brady or Brady with God knows how many years he's still going to keep playing until his arm falls off. What if if Tom Brady's arm falls off next year because he's 44? Do we then view as a failure? No, I just, I mean, right now you're looking at Brady play and you're saying, how much longer can he go on? Because I'm not even seeing real signs of any kind of decline. So if he plays like another three, four years, takes them to a couple of more Super Bowls, I would say that has to enhance his legacy independent of Belichick. 
I mean, I think he's been playing with house money for a couple of years now. Sure. Right. I mean, he's just adding to it. And then, you know, Breeze is going to retire next year. Brady's going to keep going and break every record, too, just for fun. I mean, that's I think that's the reality. I think he's kind of in a no lose situation. Right. I mean, oh, if yeah. he, even if he stank and fell off a cliff and then it's like, well, he just got old and he's done. Okay, he's 43. Of course, that was going to happen. But if he goes on a run of like three, four more years minus Bill and wins rings, I, I don't see how that couldn't enhance his overall reputation. Right. So let me ask you a question. Historically, when you look at Joe Montana's career, do you uh, downgrade his accomplishments because of the success of Steve Young and his lack of a Super Bowl in Kansas City after he left? No, because I think that the Kansas City year helped. Because he went to Kansas City and showed that even with like nothing left, broken down body, he was still able to outduel John Elway and outduel Steve Young in week three or whatever it was and get the Chiefs to a, to a playoff run and almost get there. Like he didn't win the ring, but he at least showed that there was still some Montana magic even right at the death. No, I, I agree too. I mean, that's the thing too. Like nobody's downgrading Montana for having Bill Walsh right. as his coach, right? They're always linked. He did win the one with George Seifert as the head coach, but it's like it's the same environment. It's the same team. Right. Nobody's really downgrading Montana for Jerry Rice, even though Rice would have to continue to be awesome. Or, you know, so they always have to be linked. It's football. It's a team game. Uh, let's talk some Seahawks here. You tweeted, when, when was this tweet about the Seahawks never play a, a normal game? It was last November. Yeah. And it pops up like every week up, now. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of it. I want to say it was when they were playing the, the Niners last year. Let me uh, let me check this out here. Yeah, it was at Niners. It was a 27-24 overtime game. Is this your best tweet of all time? <laughs> this is a personal question, but somebody's going to um, ask it. It's the one that gets the most heat week after week, and it's the one that's the most applicable. And I think that um, I don't even – I don't really remember sending it. I remember kind of the reaction to it, and I remember the week following or two weeks after – that it would just kept getting recirculated every single week. And then I started to realize that I had, I had, that Seahawks fans, I, I had tapped into a sort of anxiety that Seahawks yeah. fans have. And everybody then was sharing their story about, you know, some crazy Seahawks game they remember and stuff like that. So, you know, for, from a creativity standpoint, probably not my best tweet, but from a, a, a t test of time, absolutely. So, Kev, you're like an actual journalist. We're just a couple of jackasses sitting in chairs who talk to people every now and again. So yes. we don't know what we're doing. Um, but when we have guests on, I like to make a little bit of an effort and do a, do a little bit of research, right? And obviously that means Googling. Um, so when I Google Steve or me, we have relatively uncommon names. So we're the only people that pop up. When I Google... Plus, plus I'm famous. Well, obviously. Yes. Yeah. When I Google Kevin Clark, it turns out there's a yeah. few of them and that causes problems. But I was fascinated by the group of people that came up as Kevin Clark's. And I'm okay. really intrigued by your take as to which one of these people you most wish you were. So, okay. potential Kevin Clark's that you could be. There is a Kevin Randall Clark, who was a former professional American football defensive back and return specialist who played four seasons for the Denver Broncos in the NFL. So that's a pretty good baseline, yeah. right? It's a good one. After that, there's also a basketball coach and a hockey player, but they were sufficiently yes. low level that... You know, I wasn't going to dive into that. The it was the coach at St. John's University. There you it was go. not a bad, not a bad uh, yeah. job for him. So you can also have them since you know about them. Um, there is also the guy that played Freddie the drummer from School of Rock. Who is, I get a lot. I get an Instagram DM about once every six months asking if I'm him. There, so, you, go. there you go. And he's like, he's yeah. apparently now an actual rock drummer, an aspiring, you know, superstar musician. 
apparently hasn't quite broken through yet, but he's on the cusp. He's grinding. He's, he's working his way. Um, our third Kevin Clark, this one might be my favorite, is an American poet and critic, author of the poetry collections uh, In the Evening of No Warning and Self-Portrait with Expletives. Now, the reason I think this is a good one. For Americans. Whatever. The reason I think this is a good one is this was a line describing this guy in an article I read. Uh, With his neatly trimmed mustache and swept back hair, Kevin Clark looks like a retired major league ball player or maybe a retired fire chief. You could be that. Wow. I think that's a pretty good one, right? How do we know this isn't me? If you hadn't (laughs) shaved the mustache, this could be you. Wait, are you a part-time poet as well? Incorrect. I could be. I'm actually, I, I would, is, is there, are there any more Kevin Clarks? I got one more. I got one more okay. for you. <laughs> There's a Kevin Clark who's a, a film director whose biggest hits include Paranoid Activity 2. Not one. And no. something called Ghetto Pirates. Mm. A, a classic. <laughs> a classic. A true classic. Um, also, the, the New Jersey Devils PA announcer is named Kevin Clark. Oh, there you yeah. go. Maybe that's the simplest I, when job I, for you. When I lived in New York, uh, occasionally, if I went to, like, a, covered a hockey game or covered a basketball game, I would get mistaken for either the PA announcer or just from a credential <laughs> standpoint or the uh, the basketball coach. Okay. So I would, I would if I can't be me in this hmm. situation, I would like to be the poet. I, I'm not very good at poetry. Hmm. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of your, you know, some some of the some of the greats um but i don't think that i'm particularly good at, at putting the, it down on paper and so i would i would like to be better at that so i would take that guy's skills plus he's got the mustache and the hair so he's got the mustache and the hair. you're playing with house money at that point a retired <laughs> major league ball player and that's my dream to be called a retired <laughs> i'm not even major. sure i'm not even sure what that means the, the retired <laughs> ball player thing that's really strange apparently i don't look like that you're just because, a retired minor league ball yes, player. <laughs> and I, I look like that well maybe i'm looking you... this up okay this guy so he's 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 an old man yeah silver uh, he silver fox in his 70s i you, think that he you're gonna age well an old guy with the mustache i think i don't understand why he doesn't look particularly athletic Look, they've got to fill some column inches when you're writing about some poet that nobody's heard of. You've got to, you've got to get creative with Maybe the Maybe they legitimately found your old picture with the mustache. And they aged it? When you Google <laughs> Kevin Clark poet, there's a photo of my wife and I on the fourth line of Google Images, so I don't know. Google they, struggles maybe, with this stuff. Maybe uh, maybe they consider me a poet as well. I, so yeah, no, I'd go, I'd go with, the, with, with, with the poet. All right. I so think that's a good call. Special thanks to Kevin Clark, author of Self-Portrait with Expletives. Thank you for showing up. I, oh, real quick, I have to ask, how'd you get Jeff Fisher? How'd you just, how'd you connect with him? He grew a mustache. Uh, Pull him in. He, he was doing the, so I had I'd interviewed Fisher a bunch when he was a coach uh, with the Rams. And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit because he's always good with the stories and all that stuff. Um, this was Slow News Day. So week one, uh, he was doing FanDuel stuff. And so he was doing the rounds. And we heard about that in like August. And we were sifting through potential week one Slow News Day guests. And, you know, some players were available, um, kind of mid-level players. You know, our previous guests have been Lamar Jackson. So we didn't want to just, you know, kind of mail it in the first week. And so when we found out Fisher was available, we we jumped on it. He was amazing. One of our best guests ever. Totally up for, for everything. I mean, I think we did like... 45 minutes with him like we could have done a director's cut that interview he was he was awesome <laughs> love it that's great i love that you have high standards too if you have if you need mid-level podcast hosts on slow news day or anything where you uh you did grow the mustache for that though right that was the purpose of this you, you didn't just so randomly... i'm gonna tell a funny story so um i grew the must i had a beard Right. And then I shaved it down to a mustache for the jeff fisher interview yes and then the bit was going to be i was going to shave it off 
And then I was, that was going to happen in the middle of the episode. Like mid-segment? The mustache and then not tell anybody. <laughs> and then I loved the mustache. I loved it. And so I but logged they're, they're on addicting. the next day to film what is wrong with you? the second part of the show. And all my producers were like, "What? Where did, where's the mustache is still there? Like, what, what happened to your bit? And I had to explain to them that in the 24 hours since I came up with this you idea, that I just fallen in love with this mustache <laughs> and that it's staying. And uh, everybody hated it, including my wife. And yeah. certainly the producers did, uh, except the weird people in the YouTube comments and then like Twitter people, they, they seem to like it. And so I kept it for an additional like six weeks. That's, and then that's I, pretty I, good going. Go. The, the wife is always the biggest problem because I have had a mustache for about an hour in my life. Same thing, right? I had, I had this kind of beard, decided one day that I was shaving the beard off. But obviously once you've got like a full solid beard, you can't go down can't go from beard to nothing you've got to go through some stage of ridiculous facial hair right that's right that's part of the thing so i went through i went to like handlebars to the full sort of old english gentleman thing and then went to some like full like wax cornered mustache thing and i was like i have to keep this for a while and my wife was yeah. like shave that right now that is not staying you cannot leave the house looking like that so that's that they stays as long as you can leave the house mustaches are addicting that's what it is. You get attached to them. They're, They're powerful. Yes. Yes. And, and, oh. and, and there's a, like, when I, there was a gif of me that was made where I was just kind of laughing. And so there's a guy on Twitter who responded to me. He was like, the energy you give off is always, I know you're looking at my mustache. And I, <laughs> I actually think that there's something to that. When you have the mustache, the only energy you're giving off at all times is, I know you're looking at my mustache. I love it. And November's coming up. We bringing it back? Yeah, Movember probably not i mean who who was on a couple weeks ago it might have been nina on sony's day where she was basically just like listen we're quarantined with with one person during this whole thing okay right. i'm not I, I i i'm living in uh i'm not in los angeles right now the only person i see is my wife and she hates the mustache so yeah. it's a really it's a bold look right now to be like the one person i see daily hates my facial hair so <laughs> it, that, that that's the risk and that's why you can't if once we get back in to normal society, the mustache might come back because you're seeing more than one person a day. But when you're 0 for 1 in person for people who mm. like facial hair, that's when, that's when it gets to be That's true. Good rules. I will say that, so it wouldn't be me if I didn't link this back to rugby somehow, way, shape, or form. Um, New Zealand, Antipodeans, New Zealand's and Australian people love a mustache. I, I kept seeing them, all these rugby players have these giant full mustaches, and I kept assuming it was for like Movember, the same way it is when yeah. you see regular humans with a mustache. It's almost always because of that, and they would play Autumn Internationals in no November. So I just assumed that's what it was. But over this summer, I've been watching like their domestic games. They just rock the mustache. Apparently, Kiwis and Australians yeah. just like mustaches more than, you know, normal people. They're, they're tough, to, tough Sam, to get rid of. Sam, I went to a rugby game two there years ago See, Kev in South Africa. It. Yes. And Talk to me, Kev. Listeners I, are leaving. The one thing I learned in the middle of the game uh -huh. was that I actually don't know the rules of rugby at all. <laughs> Nobody does. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I thought I, I was all in. I was like, I love this. I mean, I got the basic, the core tenets of the sport. Yeah. And then things would happen. I was just like, I just, I, you, you lost me. The so. funny thing is that the rugby will change the rules just like almost on the fly. You know, like if, oh, if football tomorrow just decided that, you know what? We actually don't need the football move for a catch. Just two feet, yeah. bang, done. If they just like change that week eight, that's the kind of thing that rugby does all the time. So when you think you have it nailed, like I understand what happens to the breakdown, suddenly they'll just like make a decree that actually the rules have changed a little bit, we're tweaking it. 
<laughs> Everyone just needs to adapt, like, from one week to the next. It's kind of madness. Fascinating sport, That's Sam. amazing. I kind of like that. Yeah, just keep everyone on their toes, change the rules yeah, up. Yeah, just, just keep it keep it moving. Just keeping up with the times here, changing the rules on a weekly weekly basis. Well, Kevin Clark, much appreciated. You the host, the actual host of the Ringer NFL show? Or co-host? Yeah, co-host. Owner. I'm co-host. one of the hosts. I mean, we have, and we have a bunch of people on the pod now. They're awesome. Um, Warren Sharp, Joe House, Chris Vernon, Ryan Shazier, who's on with me uh, today or tomorrow's pod. Um, so we're, we're, all, we're all hosts. Awesome. Great. Well, go check it out. The, uh, the Ringer NFL show. Kevin, thank you for your time. Much appreciated, man. Anytime, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for that. That was great. Look at you. Your research is just spectacular, man. We're getting better at this whole interviewing thing. I think, you know, it was a rough, rocky start, but we're, we're getting there. Yeah. And, you know, we admit weakness. Like, hey, we're just new to this. Mm. You know, you just, you give that out. I don't know how to do this. I just, you know, Googled your name and some artists came out. And let's discuss. Yeah. So good, good stuff from Kevin Clark. Go check out The Ringer NFL show in their uh, rotation of great analysts. So that'll do it, man. Week 8 preview is in the books. Everybody enjoy Thursday night football. Enjoy all of the weekend action. And we'll be back here Monday morning recapping every game from week 8. Yep. 